A word to the wise, we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That would be having seen the movie Dune. there this is cross and i'm pj and i'm tolson or tim and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club when was the last time we actually read a fiction novel crossland (laughs) (laughs) it has almost been a month we haven't Um, touched one (laughs) We haven't touched a book in a month. We've done three fucking wrap ups for the last one that we did, which granted deservedly, but it it includes a whole series, you know, like it's a series wrap up. There's some specific points made here and there, um, but this will be this will be week four of not reading anything. Yep. With college, you know, does that go nicely for you? Yeah. Yeah. Works out pretty well for me right now. Yeah, I have to I have to imagine uh, that it does. So that was kind of my thought going into this. I was like, there's no way it's going to be great for PJ. He's not going to complain. And then he fucking complains in the filler. God damn it. No, I mean, (laughs) I am perfectly all right with it. Right before this episode, I sent Crossland a text message of my my schedule for the next four days broken out to the 15 minute marks with a. basically six or less hours of sleep per day scheduled so you know like i'm doing all right with not reading anything right now did you include some poop in time i didn't so that's gonna have to come out of (laughs) some other bucket okay so this is super personal my family group chat or i should say rob my sister-in-law jody rob's my brother they know that you don't we have been trading Bristol stool charts, Bristol stool charts. Oh, Bristol stool charts. Yes. yes. We've been saying like, oh, I've got like a, I've got a three bordering on like a four today. And that's healthy. It's <laughs> pretty healthy as far as I yeah. remember. Mm-hmm. I think four is what you're aiming for. Three or four. I think three or four. Yep. That's, um, that's excellent. So today we're going to be talking about a completely different kind of worm. Um, nice. <laughs> we are going to be discussing Denis Villeneuve's 2021 film Dune and some other Red Rising related components, how it ties I just, in. I mean, obviously the inspiration there and everything else. I want you to say that name like three or four more times and see how many times you say it the same way. Denis Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve. I can do this all day. Are you missing an S? I don't know how to say it. Hmm? Are you missing an S? Dennis? Dennis? Yeah. I think that's two N's makes a Dennis. (laughs) But before we do that, let's, uh, let's... Let's talk about what we're drinking. Tim, you've been so excited about your drink this whole time, this whole day. We were sitting on a call while you were making it, and you were screaming as you were running around the place. Got to hear about it. Got to understand. Got to tell us what it is. Okay, so would you like the shot or the drink first? Let's lead with the shot. Okay, so the shot is one ounce of Suze. Suze. It's another French thing, so I'll have you pronounce it. An ounce Suze? Of, I don't know. An ounce of vodka, an ounce of ginger simple syrup, 
and an ounce of lime juice. And it is called the Stim Pack. And it comes. Mm. I'm bringing to the show two themed drinks, all from the Fallout universe. The Stim Pack is derived from a YouTube creator. Um, I'm pulling up his name. I believe it's called How to Drink. Um, he's got a great YouTube channel, 1.4 million subscribers. Mm-hmm. He does like video game and you know movie cocktail creations. So this one is ginger Xander root, or excuse me, it's Brock flower and Xander root are the in-game ingredients. He looked at what the pictures and the models looked like to come up with the stim pack because that's how you craft a stim pack in the game. And it's very bitter with the ginger and then the Suze Susie. And so what it kind of does is it kind of like supposed to wake you up and it's, I can confirm it does. It's amazing. <laughs> Just like a, a awesome. kick, to, kick in the face. That yeah, sounds awesome. Good. So that's the first drink. What's, I so badly wanted to do that with you. You sent me the ingredients, and first of all, that is a huge shot. It is a giant. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, I really wanted to do it. <laughs> I uh, I could not find Suze at all. Yeah, so. it's like a bitters liqueur. I I should look up what it is. You would know what it would be. Um, the ingredient, but maybe that's not important right now. But it's a um, it's a type of like root. It's like a founded nature drink thing i I don't know Hmm. like a bitter root of some kind yeah genitin root genation genation i don't know whatever not going anywhere um would you like a second drink yes yes tell us what you're following up your shot with so when i was in the discord talking to them before all of this i had mentioned that i will be ready to record pretty soon but i have to finish baking and the drink and I responded I have, with, what the fuck are you baking? The the drink I have here is called the Dirty Wastelander. It is Ooh. one whole baked apple with butter, nutmeg, and cinnamon. So you core it, put that in, bake it at 400 degrees for 10 minutes. You then throw that thing in a shaker. Four to six blackberries, four ounces of Irish whiskey, um ice strain it it comes out with this like goopy substance you put that in the bottom of a glass and you fill the top of it with nuka cola or in this case some you know craft cola i found at byerly's and it is choice you you taste the, the the irish whiskey of course you taste the cola you get like apple flavor like you would from like a moonshine which is why i'm drinking it out of a mason jar it's amazing it's so good it's very involved probably not worth doing on like oh i'm just gonna make a drink right now because you have to bake an apple but it's really good (laughs) i want this i also want this i have apples that bingham gave me from this weekend that people did not eat and i i may be taking that and making one at some point because it sounds it does sound like a time investment but it sounds like a worthy worthy investment is it like a little bit warm um it was it was yeah it, it's pretty it's I, I don't think you're supposed to put like ice cubes or anything in it but um when it comes out of the oven of course it's like super hot so you're dropping yeah. that in the shaker um for you guys and you'll be able to see this at the website here is the photo i took with oh that is well done that is very well done well done now i understand now i understand 
Excellent. I've been Tim is Tim just up to the photo game for the entire website. I've been collecting bottle caps all summer in anticipation of this moment. <laughs> so it's great. That is you can amazing. see that at the website wordsandwhiskey.show. Look at me promoting. Yeah, and you can check out all the cocktails. Uh, what is it? Top shelf forward slash drinks. No forward slash drinks. I think or so. click on top shelf. Um, yeah. Wow. That is that is awesome and like totally outclasses both of our cocktails in such a severe way this time that like PJ, what are you having? So I knew of the ingredients for your shot because mm-hmm. you sent that to us. You didn't send us the name though, and I couldn't find the Suze. So I'm like, all right, I'll make my cocktail kind of in that vein. So I and by in that vein, I mean I'm using ginger. So I have a ginger liqueur whiskey sour. Ooh, so tasty. It is, that? Uh, it's really good a uh, little bit subtle i think i'd honestly i want a more ginger and i think i'd add some more bitters to it um mm. but it's uh one and a half ounces of ginger liqueur one and a half ounces of rye and then one ounce of lime juice and an egg white shaken nice yeah that's pretty close um yeah so i i wanted to do lemon because that was also an ingredient in yours, and I uh, didn't have any lemons. So, lime it is. But it worked out pretty well. Like I said, a little bit subtle, a little bit muted in all the flavors, but overall, not bad. Following that up, I've got Trogdor, which is a smoked porter from Pantown Brewing Company, the company that I used to work at. Smoke porter, it uses a an experimental hop varietal called Provoke, which mm. we used in our um, black IPA as well, but it is a hop varietal that's also mixed with oak chips. So it's mm. got the like sort of oaky flavor in the hop characteristic. It's great. I love it. So that on top of smoke, it's wonderful. Super, super happy about it. Crossland, what are you drinking? So I also was trying to make what Tim had made for a shot and bought Suze, but then uh, didn't have... God, what was I missing? Oh, I didn't have time to make the ginger syrup today because of the notes and editing the episode that we're putting out tomorrow um, with with El Reaper. It took up a lot of my, my afternoon, so I wasn't able to leave to go get the ginger, of which I thought I had at home. So instead, what I made was a semi-Dune-inspired cocktail. Uh, I'm calling it the Spice Melange margarita uh it is effectively a margarita uh for the most part without like any soda backing or anything like that not not doing anything crazy there one of the fresh marg style um ounce of lime two ounce tequila ounce of simple syrup and cajun hallucinogens right i mean basically yeah i'm hallucinating right now can't you tell um very good just with like that little hint of cajun you know, I, I mean, yeah, I cut you off during your uh, during your last sentence. You said Cajun. Yes, spice. Cajun um, on the end of it. But yeah, it uh, it gives it just like a nice subtle hit hit. And then to follow that up, I actually am having the same beer that I had last week. No shock. It's the mm. only beer that I had in my fridge. Um, Lemur Party, which is a milkshake style double IPA. It's great from uh, Wilmington Brewing Company brewed with I love the nerd shit on the side of this. Uh, Boyle is Warrior, Whirlpool, Mosaic, and You Cannot. Didn't you fucking told me how to say that so many times? It's not You Cannot. It's <laughs> You Cannot. Uh, Equinot. Equinot. That's it. Every time. Every time so, I say that. So Boyle is which one? Boyle, Warrior, Warrior Whirlpool, Mosaic, and You Cannot. 
Equinot, uh, Dry Hop, Citra, Amarillo, and Cashmere, Dry Hop 2, Citra, and Idaho 7. So there are tons of hops. There you go. It's, it's a lemur party. A lemur party. Click. There it is. Um, sweet. So, yeah. It's a, very tasty. It's one of one of my favorites. They actually kept it in rotation. They were going to pull it off, and they were selling through so many that they're like, I guess we'll make this a permanent beer. So it was supposed Perfect. to be a seasonal thing, but yeah. That's always the best, right? Right. Where it's just like a winner, you know? And I feel like a lot of milkshakes have like fallen off. Of course, like milkshake just kind of became like a a thing, but it's done with so like so minor lactose that's not overwhelming, which is a big problem with a number of those like milkshake IPAs. To me, at the very least, is that it would just be so upfront and creamy and ridiculous mm-hmm. versus like more understated. Yeah, the worst for me was when they got to the point where it was so much lactose that you almost got that sort of I, I hesitate to use the term, but almost sour note from it. Mm-hmm. When you say sour, you're thinking more like sour milk, less like a sour yeah. sour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yep. Right. Sour yeah. dairy. I I feel that. I feel that. All right. Mm-hmm. So with that, let's uh let's talk about Dune. Hey. So before we get into the the movie proper, I kinda wanted to field this this question a little bit out there. Uh first, like how we came upon Dune and how, you know, how how we first experienced Dune, you know, obviously reading it, it seen the other movies, seen the old movies, played the games, maybe, etc. Um, how do we all arrive at Dune for the first time? Yeah, I can go first. So the I'll tell it slightly out of order. Um, I, I at my last job we had kind of like a cafeteria, whatever. I'm super friendly with the head chef, and I remember coming down for breakfast one morning, and he's like, "Hey, how exciting is this? They're making a Dune movie." And I was like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like, I can't believe they're making a movie for that, like, really crappy 90s real-time strategy game. And he just, like, looked at me with the, like, biggest blanks there. And I'm like, what? And he's like, it's not a game, dude. It's, like, the quintessential science fiction film that, like, or movie, uh, excuse me, book that, like, spun off all these different like genres and whatever it's like a template it's in pop culture everywhere and i'm like dude it's an rts game (laughs) so (laughs) i played the rts game in the 90s i didn't know it was a book until that moment um and i've now read the whole book last um last fall and winter and now seen the movie today fun fact to like tag into that I was listening to an interview with Pierce Brown the other day um, in which he was getting interviewed by Brian McClellan, who's another author, wrote the Powder Mage series. He uh, talked about some of the games that he played growing up and the, one of the games that he spent the most time playing or the two games that he spent the most time playing were Warcraft 2, Tides of Darkness and the Dune RTS um, as to the, the games that he spent the most time in. And I can't remember if I'm remembering this correctly, but I think he played the RTS before he read the books and the books are, uh, the, the Dune book is obviously hugely inspirational for the Red Rising series. So it's funny that he potentially has a very similar origin story. Uh, not, not, you know, game before book, uh, which is funny enough. Yeah. I just, I find it funny that you didn't even realize that it was a book. Yeah. Oh, right. Absolutely and just, not. Just assumed it was entirely unrelated. Well, I mean, there's been a series um, of, I mean, Crossland's favorite movie adaptation of a video game is Rampage. So, like, stranger <laughs> things have happened. <laughs> Fuck you. I hate Rampage. <laughs> if there's if there's one movie that I could spend like a solid two hours railing on, it's Rampage, and that's like the one. 
I was anyway. going to jump in before, before you clarified yourself. I was going to jump in and come to the defense of the of the game, but you know, <laughs> the game's great. I love the Rampage game. Uh, I played the shit out of Rampage growing up, but you know, the movie is not is barely a movie. I mean, it's nope. a feature film. Nope. Anyway. <laughs> so then from there tim obviously the origin with the game um we kind of talked about it a little bit in our pre-show but you read it over the course of this last i mean not 2021 but between 2020 and the beginning of 2021 correct yeah right mm-hmm. yeah read the original story so cool pj how'd you how'd you find yourself knowing about dune um i vaguely knew about it through other i i don't even know where i i knew of dune and how it like influenced all these other sci-fi things this is my first foray into actually exploring the world of dune never played the rts either not i didn't get into rts's really until starcraft 2 i guess i guess that's not entirely true there was age of empires and uh age of mythology but that was all pretty self-contained and i I never got into like a competitive scene there. So I never really interacted with people that would have shown me those RTSs. So this is my first Dune content that I have consumed. Dune tent. Don't call it that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. I read the book back in uh, high school, I think is when I, when I actually read it, it was, it, it came to me because I liked some Stephen Baxter books that my dad had recommended um, in particular books that talked about sort of like uh, post-humanist evolution and stuff like that. My dad was like, oh, read this. Like, this is like the progenitor of a lot of these like book ideas. And so I read Dune, fairly entertaining, but like kind of dated. You know, it definitely came out in the, the 60s and, you know, definitely saw Star Wars. And it was like, oh, this is just like this kind of like star a little bit like Star Wars, but not really. But like there's there's some other stuff in here that I don't. Anyway, I liked Dune um, enough to start the second book, and then after the second book, I went to Wikipedia and read about the rest, because I was like, I don't know if I want to read past this. Like, it, it felt like a good ending, and it just goes crazy from here, <laughs> like, from the second book. Um, but I've I've never read any, any books past Messiah, so I've read the first two, but yeah. Recommendation from Daddy-O. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. And then, of course, uh, have either of you seen the 1984 dune i just said that this was my first that's fair dive. that's fair but you could have seen it at between when you saw the movie for the first time and could i, I have crossland <laughs> no fair you point. know i couldn't have i'm very familiar with the image of a fremen going mm-hmm. the spice flows but that's as far as my extent of the 1984 film yeah, that makes sense I've only recently seen it because, A, like, knowing that this movie was coming out, I wanted to see, like, what a lot of the hubbub was about. And then I was also, at the same time, going through a lot of David Lynch's filmography just to kind of understand. And then I arrived eventually when I was going through chronologically on Dune. And I was like, all right, well, here we are. I guess it's time. And, um, yeah, I mean, it gets a lot of shit for trying to interpret a large story in two hours and... You know, I think that that's a silly thing, but we can talk more about that uh, when we start talking about the movie. So cool. Um, anything else before we jump into this this movie thing? Maybe maybe it's worth noting before we start talking about the movie. Tim, you just literally two hours ago got out of the movie theater, <laughs> mm-hmm. having seen it for the first time. 
Yeah, that happened. Incredibly hot takes. Uh, I would. I prefer to say they're spicy takes. Spicy, yes. I've been saving spicy that joke. and fresh. <laughs> I just the, the spicy. I thought thing it was funnier clicked. that Crossland didn't get it. Yeah, that seems <laughs> part for the course, right? It, it physically clicked just a second too late. I could see the gear turning in my own face. So the, <laughs> looking at the doc, right, this is going to skip ahead to something that you're going to ask us later. But we did actually talk mm-hmm. a couple days ago about whether or not I had seen it, because I, I think I had known somehow that it was yeah. going to end at book one. And I told you yeah. that my favorite character isn't in the movie. And you said, what is that? And I'm like, I don't want to say anymore because I didn't want to get anti-spoilered or whatever. Right. Team no hype, all that good stuff. And I did know this who was in the movie kind of from seeing the poster when i bought my tickets you kind of can't avoid it and i saw nobody on there that looked like kinds and so i was like mm. i don't think kinds is in this movie and pj is probably very confused right now but like my biggest thing when i was watching this movie was i was like where the hell's kinds where the hell's kinds and then when kinds shows up and kinds is a male character in the um in the book pj female character in the in the movie it's a completely different character. Still probably my favorite standout character from the from the film. Um, I had a few scenes in mind from reading the book that I wanted to make sure were in some sort of context or reference in the movie. Unfortunately, if I was judging whether or not I liked the movie on those two scenes, I would have hated the movie if those were my two <laughs> evaluation points. I'm happy to talk about what yeah. those are right now, or we can dive into it later. I could. I think we'll talk about that at the end. Okay, we'll talk about I the missing s- things at the end. Well... Yeah. sure fine some of them some of them because there there are definitely like there's a couple there's a big one that i have sitting at the bottom of the document that is obviously one of the big antagonists for the second half of the story that is completely missing from the first half of this film so i i feel you i feel you there but um, i didn't really say um on the whole i yeah. thought the movie was fantastic um i get sort of like asmr and chills so i saw this movie by myself in a movie theater i hate people that talk during movies munch on popcorn i hate all that shit um i went to this movie with the sole focus of i'm here to watch this movie to talk about later i bet you 80 percent of that film i had like asmr chills and stuff on my on my back it was especially too like i normally don't read books before i watch movies having the additional context that was left out of this movie in a few places like it amplified the experience and it's not like my favorite movie of all time but it's probably the best movie i've seen this year but my like top three movie is also this year. So like I don't I'm conflicted, but it's it's really good. I'm super excited for the next one. I can't really evaluate it until I have both parts. Right. That's totally fair. That's very valid to some degree. Uh, the other the other top five movie Suicide Squad. Oh, I can't think of what last duel. It's like a top three. Movie oh, for me. right. That right. Movie is fantastic. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 That makes sense. Okay. Cool. So that was a good quick rundown. PJ, how'd you overall feel about the film? I mean, I could really see where a lot of mainstay sci-fi tropes could have come from this. The the pulse armor kind of aspect of it, specifically mm-hmm. within Red Rising, was almost exactly how I imagined it in, in the Red Rising um, saga. There's mm-hmm. obviously the Jedi like mind trick thing with the voice there's um even the spaceship designs which i don't know if that was described in the it is in the book so much but okay very well described yeah yeah i I mean all of it was 
so well done and I was really, really impressed with the entire thing. I loved the story. Yeah, it's fantastic. It, it, it felt a little bit short, even though it's like a two and a half hour movie. Like I'm like, I want more, please. So I, I could not agree with you more on that. I just to to summarize my own feelings about it, I left the theater. It remind the sense of awe that I got when I left the theater reminded me of the first time that I left the theater seeing the Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Because that's the one that I remember the most clearly. Mm. But Return of the King was the one that like really stuck with me at at that point and left with this like sense of awe and grandeur. And I feel like I haven't felt that in a long time from a movie. And I just I got those same kind of resonant deep chills um throughout and like the the entire time just flew by enjoyed every second and i was pleasantly surprised so much so that i i think i've told this a couple of times to you guys but i literally like left the movie theater went home watched it on hbo max immediately for a second time um didn't go to bed until like one or whatever that night but it was so so worth it. <laughs> if i wasn't here i would be doing that right now yeah <laughs> i i really want to see it in, in the theater because yeah. I have yet to see it as a single sitting. Oof. I I want to. I really need to. And I know I'll get even more out of it then. But also, it seems so cinematic that I just want to see it in that setting. Mm-hmm. So, I no idea when I can. But I'd like to do that. Or I'd like to figure out a way that I can get HBO Max on my Oculus and see if that would be any mm. anywhere close to good enough. <laughs> I don't think it would be, but I saw an afternoon showing. It was me and one other person in the XDX theater at the man theater and man theater is a twin cities, Minnesota chain. And they have like Dolby Atmos and really nice projectors. It's not IMAX, but it's good enough or better really. Um, and yeah, the entire room was shaking. Like when a, um, when a thopter was flying around, I was like feeling like i was in the machine it was great yeah i like to recommend this to anyone who asks or is like should i go see dune or what should i do and i'm like on the biggest loudest Mm. screen in theater that you can find like if you can go to an imax go to an imax if like do it as big and as bad as you can but also if you can just go see it in a theater i think really for me the biggest thing is like the focused experience is a better one i would say it'll be interesting to like talk about it of course and your your sort of emergent pj but obviously you liked it so like again yeah. you know the, the art speaks for itself in its own way but yeah fuck so good all right so i want to talk about specific things of course in this document what we're going to do is we're going to kind of move through plot but it's going to be a little bit meandering um to to varying degrees and we'll, we'll let it kind of go where it goes but got a number of prompts here to roll through so before we kind of kick into that plot talking about the movie i kind of want to discuss your feelings on the cast both like casting for the book itself and then cast and you know the role that they played in the film you know did you did you like how it was cast or recast or changes adaptations you know obviously tim will have a different impression than pj will um based on the books and stuff i don't can i can i have an impression i mean but you can have an impression on how you think they like fill the role okay fair enough i suppose yeah do you think they did a good job yeah yeah were there any standouts to you pj any characters that were standouts as well jason mimosa As we, as Crossland said, called him on accident before the show. Um, <laughs> looks the most unattractive I think he ever has without any sort of facial hair, and like hmm. the angle that the camera looks at him in that in that scene. But isn't it great? It's great. Yeah. It's great, absolutely. But like, he doesn't look good. 
He plays one and, of the most different characters in this movie than he does anywhere mm-hmm. else. Like, this actually yeah. speaks to him as an actor more than a lot of his other roles have. For sure. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. He's still the... I mean, because because it's just who he is and his physique, he is the rely-on-strength kind of guy. But he's deeper than that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I can see that. I don't know. I, I just thought it was kind of funny that... Mm-hmm. Uh, that like I almost didn't recognize him. It was so jarring um, when it first like shows him from that like weird upward angle of him without facial hair. Uh, let's see. There are a couple of those. There's another one where he's like wearing the robe and you get like an interesting side shot on him and he just looks starkly different because of the way that it like pulls around him. I, mm-hmm. I remember seeing that one and that one standing out to me as well when he's uh, fighting the start car and uh, or before he's not the start car when he's fighting to get to the Omnithoropter. Um, mm-hmm. In the fall of Atreides, or during the fall of Atreides, right? Um, Fuck! Yeah. Fuck! Why are you giving me these emotions right now? <laughs> oh, Paul, his his actor, yeah, Timothy Chalamet is really really good, but also the the makeup and the costuming and everything it just adds to it and. He goes from being very well put together and very sophisticated to almost looking very, very childish in different scenes. And it's so well done. And I feel like each scene kind of plays to that well enough. Like his his emotional state seems to match up with how he looks. I, that was, that was something that stuck out to me, especially on my most recent kind of disjointed viewing. God, I really, I wanted so badly to be able to just watch it twice through before this. And it just never, I never got through a single like full viewing. I I remember the first time I was watching it, Tim was like yelling at me for like (laughs) posting in our discord while I'm watching. I'm like, I'm making a sandwich right now because this is when I can can have lunch. Um, Yeah. And I'm like, Watching it while I'm working and while I'm like doing homework and while I'm in class, technically. So like, it it's never been optimal. So I'm so proud of you for yeah. you know what you're doing to better yourself as a person. But something in my soul, you have punctured my shields when you say that to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slow, deliberate cut with red sparks. Oh yeah. man, yeah, I get it. Yeah. I understand. Tim, any any standouts to you? Any anyone that particularly Okay, so I'm sorry I'm sorry, but I have to like basically run down this list. Like so I saw the poster, right? I mentioned that before. I knew that um uh I didn't see somebody that I thought would be kinds, right? So I think like at the outset, I don't know the name of the actress, but the the actress that played um kinds is phenomenal. Like I was I can yeah. I can imagine there's going to be some group of people that are going to be like, oh, my God, they had to, like, add a female cast character or whatever. Her, the essence of kinds that I got out of reading the book is this character. You could very easily put an S in front of he or whatever in all of the Dune novel. And I would be like, yes, this is this is compatible. This works. Um, yeah, I think, too, to talk about what PJ said about Paul, like when you do a movie where there's like a, a messiah character, that's a teenager it's either going to be overly confident and they're going to be like oh i'm really good at pod racing or it's going to be overly brooding like i was a pod mm-hmm. racer as a kid and now i'm a teenager or whatever so both anakin has been bad um 
<laughs> I thought that Paul's the adaptation is is really good. Like I I was super worried with reading the book. Sometimes the way that like the voice comes off is very corny, but every time it was done in this movie, it gave me chills and it's like the acting combined mm-hmm. with, you know, everything the special effects. Um another one, Gurney Halleck to me felt like um <laughs> It, reading the book, if anyone's played Fable 3, you have a character companion that's kind of this old man-at-arms of your father's. And like that's literally what Gurney Halleck is in the Dune um, novel. So when I saw Josh Brolin was uh, Gurney Halleck, I didn't have a vision of who it should be. But I'm like, oh my god, that's like totally him. And it's, it's literally everyone. The only character that I had a stickling point with was um, Oscar Isaac as Duke Leto. Um, I didn't think that he was, um, or excuse me, Leto was, um, I thought the face was right, but the voice was wrong. And I tried thinking about this on the way home. And I think it's because most of the times I've seen Oscar Isaac outside of star Wars, when he has like a glowering low voice, it's usually in like a role where he's the bad guy and not literally Duke Leto, the just as he's called in the book. So it took a while to get past that point. But man, by the time that he died in the movie, I was like, he's 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 Duke Leto the Just. Like it it just works. And I could talk about literally every character, like Dr. Yue. Um uh oh my god, I have to say one final thing. Maybe this is a problem of me, but when I read the novel, and you know that um Baron Harkonnen, his nephew is kind of like a foil to Paul, even though they don't really meet in the novel. Um, or maybe they do, but um, I don't remember. When I saw Dave Batista, Are we talking about Fied or Batista's? Oh, yeah. Right. We, is, hang on. Oh. Batista is not Fied. Oh, yeah. okay. Is he not in the book then, or the movie? Fied is not in the movie, okay. yeah. So Batista plays Glossau. Okay. Glossau. Raban, yeah. That makes a lot more Raban, sense Raban, I think, is the way that he's called. Because I yeah. was like... Wait, was Fade like secret? You would know this, like, PJ. Buff, yeah. bald guy. This whole novel. Okay, great. No, I think they okay. secretly held back that casting because they want to cast another big actor for that okay. part. But we'll get into that sure. later. Yeah. yeah. By the way, I do want to be clear. Um, yeah. I am a okay with you guys spoiling the the novel for me. So, like, so here's the reality. You guys don't though. have to tiptoe around that for me. Quick, quick, quick semi side conversation. Are we okay with spoiling that for the audience? Interesting. Um. I have no comment. Or do we just talk about the movie and then we like spoiler at the end for the book? I think that's what we do. Yeah, let's do that. I think we call out spoilers. Okay. Sorry. All right. One more. I'm cool. sorry. Yeah. I just saw this movie. Yeah, no, and I'm freaking away. out. Um, um, the Mentat, uh, Fear Howitt. Um, I didn't think he was rotund or whatnot reading the um, novel. Sure. The casting of him wearing like he looks like a um, advanced wars like imperialist. Yeah, general. Yeah, like it's that's totally it's right. amazing, and it so fits the are, character. Are we talking about Stuart? Are we talking about Stuart oh. from Devs? Yes, we are talking about Stuart okay. from Devs. Yeah, yes. Yeah. This, uh, yeah. This whole movie, the casting, like it's so top build or something. How did they do this? But everyone yeah. is right. Everyone is right. That's enough. I think. I think Del- Denis Villeneuve puts out a casting announcement. Everyone's like, "Me, please, me." Can I do it? And then everyone was like, he was like, all right, so you and you and you and you. It's just so good. Lady so my too. my standouts. It's so good. Sorry. My 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 standouts that I'll for sure mention, uh, my my two favorite performances, if I just had to like pull two out of a hat, Stellan Skarsgård as the Baron is incredible because he is in the book, he's a 
pretty like cookie cutter evil. Mm-hmm. Like he's fairly cookie cutter, mm-hmm. you know, guy guy in the background being an asshole. Um, and Baron Hart, like Stellan Skarsgård, adds a menace to that character that is perfect. It is vile. It's despicable. The way like his back cracks when he when like the thing kicks in and picks up his fat ass, like because he's <laughs> he's several hundred, he's like six hundred pounds, PJ. Um, so he's like a fucking and obviously it depicts him as a very heavy dude in a fat suit, but like he is hefty. Yeah. Um, so question about that. Ugh. I know yeah. I know at one point in this document you mentioned uh levitation. Well, levitating. Yeah. Yeah. So th- I genuinely couldn't tell if it meant for him to look like he was levitating or if it meant to look like he had just weird super crazy long spindly legs. But I think that that's actually part of the cool factor of that character because it creates some terror that you like don't know and he is like that vile. I think it's both because he has some sort of mechanism in his back that they show multiple mm-hmm. times. It's like down his spine. So I expect it's a bit yeah. of levitation because they have levitation chairs and lamps. Um but when mm-hmm. he's walking across that table it's definitely there's definitely something there. It's not just a cloak. It seems like it's clacking. Yeah. yeah, it does seem like there might be something underneath, which also is strange because of the this like hand spider thing that's in the room, mm-hmm. which is also not in the books, but seems to be something else that's related to the book. So maybe we'll talk about that at the end. So selling selling Skarsgård as Baron was great. And my second favorite was Rebecca or my my favorite character portrayal was Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica was fucking perfect. Mm-hmm. Like could not imagine better broke down so emotionally inside of all of those scenes and felt real genuine. Like she was actually like melting and dying and crying and, and all those different moments. Um, yeah, fuck there's, there's the cast breakdown, but I, yeah, yeah I think oh. we got just about everyone. Whew. Yeah. I mean, yeah. David dust, Melly John is Peter DeVries too. Did a, did a great job. Um, we we'll talk about the Mentats a bit later in general. Javier Bardem as Stilgar. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got a whole thing so about Stilgar good. that I want to go into for sure. Yeah. Uh, very exciting to have that casting in advance of the next story, too, because, mm-hmm. yeah, just fantastic. So, you know, I, I found it very interesting, and, and this is maybe a meta question that we might even get into again at the end. But at the very beginning of the movie, before anything rolls, before the legendary title credits roll, before anything goes, the first words are in Sardaukar, dreams are messages from the deep. Right? You get that, like, deep rumbling to kick the whole movie off. Do we think that that's something tonal, or is that... Is that hinting? I mean, you're asking, so it's hinting. Hinting? PJ, how do you feel about it? I mean, I I mean, I think it's entirely foreshadowing. Like we get so many dreams. I don't I don't know how else to view it, you know? Sure. I just found it interesting, and maybe this is more of a, a book conversation in that way too, because it's in Sardaukar. It's in the Emperor's like home planet, his soldiers' language, which is what's maybe the strangest part of it, because if you would you would assume that potentially and you might not you don't assume this at the very beginning of the movie of course because you you wouldn't really know especially going in completely blind like you are pj which is why i'm how i'm trying to approach this um you wouldn't know what language you wouldn't know the importance of what language right off the bat so it feels almost like a tonal thing uh, intentionally like a tonal thing to kick off the movie but the sardaukarian the choice to make it a sardaukarian thing is i think a good one but it leaves that question still of like, are you just doing this for tonal reasons or are you doing this for other other reasons? It does feel like a thesis statement, though, at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, I, I couldn't really tell you my initial thoughts. I didn't I didn't put a whole lot of thought to it 
right sure. away on my first viewing and i guess that kind of spoils the the virgin no all that i was saying is like you've seen it one time pj's seen it once i've seen it six times so like i'm festering from rewatches at this point <laughs> I, i've seen it a couple times i just haven't seen it in a single sitting yet it, one of the things that we should jump into here too and obviously it's prevalent throughout the entire film because, again, it's a Villeneuve. But there are a ton of very striking visuals throughout the f- which, you know, is definitely a specialty of our, our director and his uh, choice cinematographer. But I'm curious as to any favorites that stand out for you. I mean, there's, there's obviously the sweeping landscape shots, Arrakis kind of. Going from the the sands to the giant wall to the just sprawling dense city, I that was a that was a fun reveal, I guess. Along with knowing that that wall is not only protection from the worms, but also just protection from the environment in general. I liked that. I, I liked the desert cinematography of looking through binoculars and zooming in on. Mm. It was a little bit corny at times, but zooming in on the on the worm coming through, but real enough and well well enough done. It's very Jaws like as well. You don't really see the worm yeah. until the end, which is interesting. Yeah. I got strange like Starcraft vibes off of it for some reason. Just not even <laughs> the content, not man. even. <laughs> yeah, there's that, but but the the dialogue. The dialogue felt very, how would I describe it? Not NPC, but yeah, like... But like less the Western dialogue, less the Western dialogue of StarCraft, some of the StarCraft 2, more like almost, the formal, I get I get the Mengsk impression, you know, from a lot I, of that. I think, I think I'm going a little bit even uh, more, or less specific than that. It felt okay. almost tutorial-like, mm. like, mm. hey, look at this. Oh look! Here's a problem. The anchor's not working. What are you gonna do? Like that's <laughs> that's the kind of vibe that I got off of it. When when like the spice harvester is going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes that makes sense. I don't know what I don't know why that like came from the visuals thing, but I was just thinking about. It makes sense. It's like a tutorial. It should land here, and then it inflates. There's like that whole scene where they showed inflating for the first time, you know, so that you understand what's going to happen later, and it does. It's reminiscent of that. Yeah. I feel that. So um, while PJ focused on like grand vistas and kind of the visual of the worm and stuff, I am going to take this slightly different and kind of talk a bit about like the technology and like the ships and and whatnot Mm -hmm. and draw pair or be really specific on one thing and then draw a parallel to another act of pivotal sci-fi. So the Thopter um, is probably my favorite thing because when I would read the book, I had in my mind this idea of if you like go to Google and you search Victorian ideas of space flight or like flight in general, you're going to see a man in a wicker basket and some down feathers, and he's just going to be like flopping his arms up and down. And the description of it in the book and the glossary at the end would always make me comically think of like a man in a wicker basket flapping his arms. So I'm so happy that our boy Denny like really crafted a real visual of it. And if you look at the design language of the Thopter in this, it feels very much inspired by modern where it kind of looks like an Apache or a black, uh, 
Black Hawk helicopter, like one of those put together, but the rotors are, you know, mounted on the same axis and they, you know, f- going more like a dragonfly versus like a wicker basket and feathers, as I would think of. Um, to take that yeah. to the parallel, I want to draw. This movie is incredibly faithful to what I think the book was trying to do, given the relative time it came out. You're not seeing like data pads. You're seeing like that, you know, janky hologram projector or whatever, which kind of looks like it could belong in the mm-hmm. 60s in a way, kind of like how there's retrofuturism vibes and stuff in like Star Wars. But um, specifically on things like the ships, to draw to that other example, if you think of like War of the Worlds, that book came out in like the 1890s or something like that the pods that are described in that book that came from mars or whatnot they're like very like steam based in the way they're described and when i read the novel i felt a lot of the descriptions fit this like 1950s 60s idea of what way beyond tech would look like in this movie just like captured that so well um, so like the technology aspect really grounded me in the world like i expected dunes to look like dunes kind of but seeing like how they interface with their world was super compelling. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the more interesting things is like the, the actual, um, God, what the, what the fuck are they actually called? The tubes, the planet, the interplanetary travel tubes. Um, mm, yeah. You know what I'm talking about the, the like giant satellite things that you can like see the other plane through. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the basically what the spacefarer guild is required in order to navigate and why like the spice is so important to the society to like go back and forth because computers have all but entirely been eliminated because they've been purged um, because they tried to kill humanity in a rebellion. So this is like post Terminator shit. Um, PJ, you didn't know that, but that's, <laughs> that's nope. the background as to why there are no computers um, and like so little like physical, like calculators don't exist and mentats are trained to be calculators. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Hmm, sounds like, um like a class hierarchy, like, um, other franchises like maybe yeah. yeah like people are trained for specific roles inside of society That's in weird. different ways good mm. idea weird. weird interesting interesting super super interesting um yeah for for me the two that the two shots that stick there are so many that are so great but i i love the shot of the spaceships flying away like the harkonnens fleeing the planet fleeing <sighs> arrakis from underneath because that is such you like we see all the time like ships like the bottom being the light and then like ships flying away over top but the fact that they were flying away underneath it wasn't only a unique tone but it also like it, it was a unique visual but it also is very tonal for like them fleeing the planet in kind of disgrace seemingly and so it, it sets a very different like emotional tone for the way that you're like leaving something and i i thought that that was just magnificent mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in a lot of ways it you just punch me in the gut and like right away rewatching the film that was a big one the second one is the initial landing of the emperor's herald ship and like just that giant orb the egg oh, and then yeah. the legs coming out and landing and the way that that like procession comes down off is very like very reminiscent of the way that you imagine like the emperor landing in star wars and various components like that right like it is but but like 20 fold like this is way bigger than anything that anyone else is flying around in in the series elsewhere in star wars or whatnot so it um yeah there's just this grandiose scale to to dune that is i don't know i don't know this is gonna yeah so good grandiose seems like the right way to describe it like there is some 
like the scale of a lot of these ships is a little bit staggering sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, another one that, that definitely struck me as like a visual comparison too, um, and one that definitely has story ramifications, but the spice harvesters that are used by the Harkonnens versus the spice harvesters that are used by the Atreides family in those two different moments are very different, like astonishingly different. Um, I'm curious, PJ, what you think about the harvesters. I mean, we there's a comment made about the uh, the equipment left by the Harkonnens, and mm-hmm. it just being like the shittiest like equipment that they had. So I'm assuming that was the reason. Like the the sort of round circular harvesters were the uh, the newer models so to speak and these were the broken Mm -hmm. down old shitty ones and that would kind of help reason out the reason why ah reason out the reason reason out (laughs) the uh (laughs) the failure of the anchor point when they were evacing the uh the harvester just shitty old equipment that is not useful anymore yeah versus the harkonnen seem to have like a a regularly attached like balloon it looked as though it might fly away like the rest of their ships it kind of seemed like it had a perpetual balloon attached to it so it could like lift off the ground with that like orange light underneath um when the when the freemen are attacking and it launches out the missiles and whatnot so yeah Mm -hmm. yeah tim thoughts on uh yeah i thought it was pretty great the way they scrape i like how it kind of left in agricultural pattern like when you plant or plow a field and it looks very much like it has a row system i thought that was kind of interesting Mm -hmm. i think their catch mechanism to pick them up and fly them away that whole thing where it was unable to take it away and then it you know that's when our heroes came in and rescued people um that was really interesting but i don't really have much to add uh, other than it looks kind of what i thought it would look like but um I did imagine them to be more like drilling platforms than scraping the surface, um, mm, like an oil okay. drilling yeah. platform kind of thing. But it's neither here nor yeah. there. I'm happy with it. Yeah, it's it's an adaptation. So some some things will spin and some things will change. Um, and that's kind of that's also how I feel about like the Harkonnen ones is they they appear more like an oil drilling platform because they appear to be a much bigger mechanism. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus the, the what what Atreides is left with to PJ's point. So, yeah, absolutely. So the Bene Gesserit are a unique organization inside of the Dune universe. Um, They seem to have some mystical powers there. They're into preserving a bloodline for a savior someplace down the road. Um, The, oh my God, uh, Kardash, uh, Haswitz Kardash. I forget how the hell I put this somewhere because I knew that. Kwisatz Herdash. Uh, I knew that I was going to forget what it was. Hatterock. Yeah, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so the Benny Jesserit are a very unique organization inside of this universe. What PJ, again, leading the impression with you because you're going in kind of blind to this movie. Um, what'd you think? I'm, st- I'm still left a little bit in the dark about them. Like yeah. they're, they're clearly mysterious. Um, and they, a lot more questions than answers. Mm-hmm. at the end of all of this but we know from this film as far as what i know about them they are almost exclusively women or are exclusively women um 
Benny Gesserit are only women, with the exception of Paul. Who is trained in their ways, but isn't one of them yet, correct? So, exclusively women. As far as we know. Right. As far as As far as you know. Entirely women. Their powers, the powers involved with them seem to be innate, but need to be trained out of them, or trained into them, I guess. So, something they are birthright kind of they mentioned birthright um and i think that's what they're talking about clearly they carry sway politically wherever they are the matriarch or the witch or whatever we want to call her she's referred to in a couple different ways either is something other than human yeah mother superior i don't know if she's not human but she refers to paul as young human which tells me then that there are intelligent non-human beings that are involved or are at least prominently um, a part of this world, which we don't really get a whole lot of. We get that weird, like, creature thing. The um, Oh, like yeah, the, the, the hand thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, but we don't really get any non-humans so much other than the Baron, whatever we want to call him. He seems kind just of... Just a big boy. He's a big Baron's boy, just a big boy. I don't know. I could see him being something other than human, potentially. Yeah. But for the most part, that kind of sums it up. You know? Yeah. like we, we really don't know a lot about it. They're, they're heavily involved in the story, but without a whole lot of information actually divulged. This is kind of a fun game for me, playing the two of you kind of against each other, right? Because I get to ask PJ the blind question and Tim the informed question, right? So, Tim, the Bene Gesserit, how did you feel about the adaptation of of them and how did you feel about the portrayal? And I think they're both pretty close. Um, I think yeah. the adaptation, I think you said um, superior mother, but isn't it like revered mother something whatever there's there's a reverend mother but it's mother the reason i remember mother superior is because it's also the name of a lead character in the coheed and cambry universe and it's oh, directly sure. stolen from Dune. Oh, sure um yeah that's the only reason that i know that i i actually don't know if i have a very good answer for that on how well the benny jesuit are um adapted i thought the box scene was really good with the uh, gunja bar um yeah and um that was really good i think the whole you're just missing more context is all and i don't know how how i can really think about what gaps are missing because some of that part is fading to me too because there's stuff that happens at the end of the dune book that is very benny jesuit stuff um but then like in the early part of the movie there's obviously the 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 trial with the box um it talks about how on um Arrakis itself, there's been prophets that have come forward and kind of like boasted the voice of mm-hmm. Paul as being the Messiah. And that's all like pretty much there. It's just missing more flavor, I suppose, which is fine because mm-hmm. runtime is the thing they have to be concerned with. What do you think? Because I, I think I don't know if I answered that to your satisfaction. No, I, I mean, I, I think I mostly agree. And I think I also agree with kind of PJ's opinion. I think that they did a very good job of employing it. And I think one of the important things that the Bene Gesserit um, get across that might otherwise be lost here um, with, with the exception of a couple of exchanges that we have with uh, Duke Leto Atreides is 
the importance of of like genealogy and the length yeah. of bloodlines that is that is an incredibly important thing to the series and the Bene Gesserit basically go through like the the mother superior goes through this whole conversation with Jessica about you know her supposed to have a girl she was supposed to have a girl and said she chose to have a boy and that's that's its whole own other issue well and that was so just to be clear here too so this is you know stuff that's talked about in the book during the time of the movie it wasn't just that too she mm-hmm. like chose to have a, a, a boy she, she did but that was a big thing with um uh duke leto um that was something that like they wanted together i i believe right like she she expounds yes. in the yeah. book that you know having a son was like for the love of duke leto and what what not um and a thing they don't talk about is the idea of her having um so they're not married they do talk about that in the book right so correct so, and he he also says that he's upset that he never married her that's like his last words to sorry her. in the movie yeah. i meant to say they, they say that and so the whole like implication here is that duke leto stays as a bachelor for the other great houses and the idea of him supposed to be having a daughter is because the feuding factions the like governing body that is the Benny Gesserit is kind of like playing this like Illuminati 3D chess over all of these um, houses. And so the whole idea and why they're mad at her is because they were going to marry off her daughter to the Harkonnens and then feud is over. So, yeah, or ideally, right? So like Jessica fucked up. Jessica and Leto <laughs> fucked up the, the galactic plan. Right. Basically. Which, and that's kind of lost here right now. Right. But it's also not that it's not overly critical to the interpersonal conflict at hand at the moment. So, like, it doesn't need to be played. It, up. Well, right. But it helps set up the stakes as to why after being on Arrakis for maybe a week, they're getting like bombed from orbit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is its own thing. <laughs> it's like, ah, we've barely been here and we are dead. <laughs> right. Um, definitely. Definitely some a lot of a lot of shit there. So, yeah, I am. Um, I feel that, but I I really think that you know you can you can kind of over overblow this in in a way, right? Because the Benny Gesture obviously tied directly in with the what I would say is the most um, immediately fantastical element of the story, which is also the voice, which is the inspiration for the Force, um, and is obviously like a big thing inside of sci-fi is this sort of like super preternatural idea that you know people can control other people and in telekinesis, te- not telekinesis, but rather, oh my gosh, telepathy. Uh, so yeah, uh, PJ leading off because this makes sense to ask the questions in this direction every time. PJ, what did uh, how did you feel about the voice? It felt incomplete, and I think we're intentionally only kind of given the sort of compulsion side of it right now. But I'm expecting there to be a little bit more than that, especially with how powerful the Bene Gesserit seem to be within the uh, within the universe, I guess. And, and within the high-ranking officials in general... They are well-respected and revered and feared to a certain extent. And it feels like just kind of being able to get somebody to do your bidding in a short term is not enough for that to be the uh, the reason for all of that. So I'm excited to see where that might come from and what, what that might exp- like expand to. 
but in general it i mean obviously jedi mind trick all that stuff was totally ripped from yeah. this directly yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> yeah there's 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 no question there of the the inspiration i have a question for pj oh which uh, maybe it should let you finish but but uh where does that power stop is it just a voice what what do you mean so if if a lot of jedi powers are um inspired by the voice like the the you know you didn't see anything let us walk by like that's a clear adaptation of jedi having this power from the voice well we know that the jedi have other powers do the benny jesuit have any other powers that's what i'm that's what i'm expecting to be the case but do you know what they are that's the question or would you predict yeah what yeah, what PJ do i prediction. let's get you to drink some more all right <laughs> all right so we need to come back for whenever movie two comes out or whenever i read the mm-hmm. book one of, the, <laughs> one of the two um i think clairvoyance is something that we get a little bit of insight on we know that uh mother dearest or mother superior whatever what are we calling her <laughs> mother superior i think, it, I think it's mother, mother superior dearest. pretty sure uh, are you sure that's mother, not your mom, mother dearest would you would you come and deliver the pasta <laughs> for me mother dearest mother we know that she knows about paul's dreams mm-hmm. we don't know why or how it's not clear if jessica divulges that or if she just knows through clairvoyance, I, I I'm willing to bet that she just knows. What about here's and that's part here's one part of the extension of that. Yep. Do they have like airbender shit? Can they like force push? Can they you know, lift sand? Can what can what can they do anything like that? Or is it all mental? Where do you where do you think it ends? Uh, like essentially telekinesis. Okay. Is that is that what you're kind of getting know. at? He's proposing, do you think it could be right. telekinesis potentially, or like, could they generate lightning? Could they, where, where do you think the limit is right. on this power That's what I'm trying to that you don't out. know a whole lot about? I, yeah. hmm. I don't know if there is a limit. I think, I think the limiting factor would be, uh, the constitution of the body trying to. Hmm, okay. That's interesting. Um, so you ground it a little bit more physically versus like yeah. the force. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's whatever strength or whatever uh metric the the uh sort how how would i how would i describe it the person trying to conjure these abilities need to be trained and need to be strong enough in some sort of way whether that's physically or mentally or whatever but i i think the limit is the vessel okay itself that, not yeah, necessarily the power i'm just probing i'm fine with i'm happy with those answers okay yeah. more than i within don't reason. i don't have any specifics because i have no idea right. but um that's kind of my guess for the record to your point tim it is reverend mother superior which is <laughs> even better because right. we're both correct <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. mr so dr is, reverend mother it, superior basically yeah, to, so there's literally all of what that we were title saying is bullshit because i used to have doctor on my yep. fucking credit card so it's <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah why did That's, you get rid of that it's so fucking embarrassing i went to i went to i went to lunch with one of my um coworkers who actually has a phd in um astrophysics 
And like I paid because you know it's my turn, and he goes, "Oh, a doctor, huh?" And I'm like, "Am I getting like <laughs> severely gatekept right now?" And I was rightly so. Like I, I'm, I don't like gatekeeping, yeah. but I mean, I had a fake, I had stolen valor for PhD on my <laughs> fucking credit card. Which for the audience to know, I wasn't trying to get like free miles on whatever. I literally was getting a new card, and I was like, "Oh, I'm going to get like my favorite NHL team on the card," and like she's like, oh, "Okay, cool," and puts me on hold. I get back and she goes, um, anything else I can help with? And I was like, hmm, can I put doctor on my card? Just as like a question. She immediately put me on hold. Ten minutes later, she comes back and says, congratulations on your PhD, Mr. Olson. Have a nice day. And I was like, no, no, no. All right. I have one now. <laughs> and yeah, so that's, that's my life. Um. <laughs> oh no yeah that will now forever be emblazoned on the podcast which is fantastic permanent knowledge to the universe but also hilarious and uh a wonderful I think, wonderful story I think we should update your bio on the website to be dr <laughs> x dr olson no <laughs> um fantastic fantastic so i i want to talk a little bit about some of the filmmaking devices that that make this incredible world that is you know very deep it's i think the book is what tim remind me it's like 900 plus pages right now um i know that's why i was asking because i was like you have the book right in front of you if you include the appendix okay 850 so very close it's okay probably 800 all, all sudden done um huge huge book huge world that's given i i love the use of the the expository device in the form of the shots of the projector that we had kind of mentioned earlier. I thought that that was a great way to kind of lean in. Um, were there any other like interesting world building moments that you guys jumped on that you, you enjoyed or liked? I've got one kind of, they changed the location more. If I, I could be wrong on this, but when reading the novel, I believe the speech that Duke Leto and Paul have on Kaladin, I'm pretty sure that happens like in mm-hmm. someone's chambers inside their castle versus like on this sweeping vista uh, yeah. and like tombstones and 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 what yeah it's it's amazing and then i believe too same thing when you meet duncan in the book um i think it's in like chambers in a castle not like him returning from like this he's got this badass ship or like plane thing on kaladin and they're like riffing with each other and like being more interactive than just dialogue on a page um that really exploded the world to me i think is seeing like things that like frank herbert did a really good job but like people could flesh out this stuff more visually than he did in the dialogue yeah, it's, and it's been 70 right. years storytelling I mean, can yeah. adapt 100 uh, yep. yeah so that's what i think i've said 100 percent now i think three times this is a very tricky gambit <laughs> for me to deal with um <laughs> to you pj so i think for me it was a little bit more my my example that I'm going to bring up is a little bit more subtle, but when Paul gets to Arrakis for the first time, they they single him out and ask him what it feels like to walk on a new planet, presumably because everybody else has already been on a different mm. planet, and he's the, mm-hmm. the one singled out for having never been on one before. So for that, just I mean, we know we know it's a spacefaring civilization and we know it's uh um expansive in that way but knowing that it's common enough that like you have to make note when somebody does it for the first time it was interesting that's a great point that is a very subtle hint that is like brilliant dialogue to to your point yeah 
Wow. Yeah, that's nice. I like that. There, there are a bunch of like other moments like that that remind you of some of those like bigger universe things, but that is something that could be very easily missed. And I think actually probably is very easily missed in a number of other sci-fi films. I mean, again, if we were to throw this into a space opera ranking list, this is up there, this adaptation. Like, how many other, A, like how many other space operas really are there? Uh, and then B, like... How many are there that aren't derivative of this? Yeah. All right, I have this. I have the <laughs> spiciest take. I'm going to give all night nuclear this take. I'm ready nuclear. for it. Um, Dune, and with this one film, I don't care. They might even get J.J. Abrams or that hack Ryan Johnson on the next one. Um, Dune. How dare you? This book, holding the book up for the listeners, and the movie is better than all of the Star Wars universe. Done. It's better. The, I mean, the, um, the, um, the voice stuff is that. there. We're probably going to talk about this later. But the, um, the like, I, lightsabers are fucking dumb. I'm sorry. I'm, I told you, I am, you know, we are not allowed to have atomizers on Arrakis. Well, guess what, bitch? I'm just firing a laser gun at your shield right now because Star Wars sucks. <laughs> PJ doesn't know what right. that does. We want, but... <laughs> I want to talk about that. I want to have a technology. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about talk, that later for sure. With PJ. Yeah. But, Yes. Nuclear take. I don't even remember what the prompt was. I wish I read this a long time ago. This is way better than Star Wars. It was. It was Star Wars. We, we were just I, vaguely. Even I was like originals. ranking some of the the Star Wars, the adaptations. It's terrible. Um, wow, that's crazy. But uh, <laughs> what what I would throw back is that I think that by and large, like my love of Star Wars really came from like the original movies and the prequels, and then the EU at large. But this is like shout out to Brexit, guys. Don't let's not let's not fucking lie to ourselves this is the best star wars movie yeah that's what i was saying say it crossland star wars <laughs> like, sucks yeah no i know well, i'm not stupid. gonna say the star wars sucks because i enjoy star wars but like i i like star wars is chintzy after oh, yeah, this adaptation terrible. like it is it is almost cheesy in a lot of ways with the exception of like the mandalorian um so with star wars strangely i don't know how i'm coming to this conclusion right now but it feels small it feels contained and small (laughs) interesting interesting like because there's not the threat of something else it is this faction versus that faction and that's it there are other planets that they can go to and hide on but there's not like this sort of idea of sabotage from within when like they are supposed to be an extension of the emperor and it's it, it's entirely like set up like uh, star wars there's so much star wars was made more sorry i have a unknown. i have an end cap here star wars yeah. was made to sell toys dune was to sell science fiction to the world baby <laughs> i don't know if that's true the original star wars was not made uh, to yeah, sell toys whatever i we we could go so far as to propose that later in the series and whatever return of the jedi and that's why like that was that was made to sell toys but i would at the very least to pj's point on the side of the political intrigue that obviously exists inside of dune that is like you can see very clearly from dune's template what george what what lucas was trying to capture what he was trying to go back and capture and like add to the Star Wars story through the Emperor, through that entire thing, was trying to add some political intrigue and like a little bit of backplay and like the betrayal of Dooku. And, like 
you can more clearly see where the prequels borrow even heavier from Dune um, mm-hmm. than the original trilogy does in its own way. But yeah, I would agree with you in both of you. I would agree with that. It, it does become this very contained thing now that we've only focused on the Skywalker saga for so long. That is effectively this small group of like 12 characters that <sighs> you've heard matter. it here first. Anyway, back Crossland to Dune. hates Star yeah. Wars. Send your hate mail to Crossland at Crossland.com. I don't know. Probably not real. Definitely not that one. Actually, I do have that one, but we're not going to talk about that. I'm editing (laughs) it anyway. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just fucked up now. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So one, one of the things that I wanted to ask, this is maybe for me, this is the only thing that I felt was the hardest to connect the dots from the book to the movie. And that is the Mentats. PJ, to lead off, what do you think of the Mentats? I mean, flippy-eyed dudes that do math are pretty dope. Um, <laughs> yes. I, flippy-eyed I math dudes. get that much more than that. Like, yeah. it's really cool. They calculate stuff. They know but Peter derives us more than that. Like Pete, the the Harkonnen Mentat, right? You don't learn anything about Piter in this. Yeah, I I felt like it was a really cool set of characters that are distinguished by a tattoo on their lips that could do math really well and like logic things out pretty well. Assuming that they're essentially the replacement for computers makes sense. To an extent, they still seem it, it seems like some sort of computational device would still be better than a person. But honestly, I don't feel like we got enough of them to for me to really have a clear um take on on them in general as a as a people. And and that's why I ask, because I, I think that, you know, Tim, what do you think of the yeah, so I, portrayal I here? I kind of said that when PJ started talking about, or yeah. you brought up uh, Piter. Um, yeah. I don't think, like, you get enough of him at all in this movie. Um, PJ, do you even know who that is? Okay, no. so remember the scene with the, um, uh, it's a later prompt in the doc, so I don't want to talk about it, but the, um, the like, jam field, right, that, that they're talking with they send the little creepy spider hands thing away piter is there mm-hmm. in the adaptation of him is fantastic too it's like this bald kind of tiny man um but piter is a mentat he's harkonnen's mentat but he's also a master assassin so this whole plan that okay. ua goes on is conspired by piter and like so they're they're they are just machines but there's like they're like a red rising trope it's like a class of humans that are like genetically engineered mm-hmm. to be society's computers um it's yeah, imagine like a blue and a white combined yeah. is the way that i think about mentats for the most part like so the ritualistic I, I aspect the, of the white and like maybe a yeah like the blue and the kind of plugged in nature i was thinking the bene Gesserit as white mm, yeah that kind of yeah like what would they be other other than that i, I don't know if they think they're blues either Okay, maybe greens is better because we don't get a whole I lot on greens. Green. Like that's we get almost nothing I, I'm on just, greens. I'm, I'm thinking about like the way that like I'm I'm strictly thinking in Mentats about the way that like blues plug in right and like communicate mm-hmm. that way, but it's in their own head. So maybe that's green again. Like PJ was saying, we get almost nothing on greens. We talked about this last week for a bit with the episode with uh, Hail Reaper, but uh, that was that was definitely a thing 
Yeah. So, you know, somewhere in that computational zone, oranges kind of fit to, you know, like there's there's a combination of things there. Green's probably the closest, though. But yeah, I, I agree, Tim. By and large, it's it's crazy that Mentats aren't again. How do you do it without slowing down the pace right. of this so much? Because this is truly going through the story at a blistering pace that is intelligible um, and still building out the universe in incredible ways. But I, I don't know how you give Piter a whole lot more time than what he gets. Mm-hmm. Like maybe a conversation with Yule Wei, but then it gives away the betrayal earlier, right? Because then we'd know that he set up Yule Wei, you know? Yeah. I don't know. And then the reveal when he kills, you know, or when he poisons Leto and then gives him the tooth, like that would be... Yeah, because you know yeah, that shit's that going play. down way earlier in the book. Well, you have that fourth yeah, wall. That, yeah, it had to have happened so far well, right, before. but you find out about it already with... Um, oh, we'll probably talk about this later. So, yeah, this is this is one of those things of, like, adaptation that's so great to see, where it's like, this these are the decisions that you make when you're adapting something. Well, maybe... I actually don't see something in the doc about this, so I'm just going to ask it now. PJ, do you think UA's betrayal came out of nowhere? yes because we almost never like we see him only a couple times beforehand so yes and no in that yes it came from nowhere but also we didn't get to see him enough to know how trusted he was okay i guess so i'm gonna we knew that there was a spy too beforehand but it was like who could the spy be and it was very clearly pointing to the freeman woman that we just grabbed but what from what there's always what that Fremen question are you who talking could about been in the inner party um what's her name the assistant uh i was making sure you weren't saying yeah, handmade yep no yeah it wasn't kind cool. were you gonna say something else you were gonna say something else before that I no I, you. Well, I just think that like again the book more context um you find out through the way that ua talks to lady jessica that something has gone awry he uses a much more like noble title to address her like he's very clear to call her lady jessica even though he's her personal doctor paul's doctor presumably duke leto's um doctor as well Mm -hmm. and so then she tells him no no no, you've been here long enough like please just call me like jessica don't stop the formalities and like you can see that he's trying to work his way into the inner circle to end up doing what he did um and i felt knowing that context when it became night and I see um, Duke Leto walking around his chamber and there's that dead person who is unnamed in the movie, but named in the book. Mm-hmm. I'm like, wait, this is happening right now. Shouldn't there be a dinner party? But, you know, whatever. Right. Pacing. Yeah, they they had to condense a couple things down. But yeah, they, I would imagine if there is ever an extended cut of this movie, that dinner party Ooh, will really? exist very specifically to. I Yeah, 100 percent. I feel like that's a very easy inclusion to like just tuck in to like pull back to that moment i think that that makes a lot of sense i don't think that you need to add much a ton more context yeah anyway pj doesn't understand that's okay part of the reason that i really enjoyed this adaptation is the military aesthetic that's used throughout this film it's so dramatically different than its most obvious comparison that of star wars but the the rest of them i mean even lord of the rings like has a sense of fantasy and drama but the the chants that are used here the way that they charge in these scenes all of it to me i don't know hit hit different maybe especially after reading red rising and like having this experience of the saga now behind me like 
this imagination, I can perfectly paint the picture of the way that I think of of uh, the the like Pegasus Legion, and I can think about all of these different conflicts that seemed untenable in a larger way that I'd never been able to consider before now seeing Dune on screen like stormtroopers in a line is stormtroopers in a line like they're like regular soldiers for the most part but a bunch of sword wielding sci-fi badasses I don't know the house of trades chant fucks me up every time I get chills I get Mm -hmm. chills yeah yeah it was grand it was it reminded me simultaneously of something like red rising and something like historical like ancient ancient wars i'd watched gladiator the week before this too so there was that that was like riding in my brain because of last mm-hmm. duel and everything else so it was like it was right there in my in my psyche um yeah and i just i compared the two of those and i was like yeah definitely makes sense like the the scale is there but i don't know something about something about that house chant and everything else just got me got me going yeah there there was also sort of in invocations of the unsullied Ooh, yeah. from Game of Thrones in a certain way. I don't know. It was, it was grand. <laughs> I guess, I guess that's the best way to put it. It was grand and uniform and well put together, which, as you mentioned in the question, is not something you really get from Star Wars. All in all, yeah. I mean, the only times you really do are when it's like the Emperor, or like Darth Vader, coming off of a, you know, like there, there are very few occasions where you're seeing. Hundreds of thousands of stormtroopers, you know, mm-hmm. being presented but, in stand-up military fashion. Like you mentioned, the stormtroopers are kind of different. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel as big when they're clones, you know? And they're not necessarily all clones, but are they? Or are they? No, they're not clones. They're not. Yeah. Clones also have a very different name inside of this universe. Okay. Not that that's important, but, you know, it's a thing. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. But yes, clones, they are not clones in that they're in the exact same outfit and look exactly the same. Like they, it, it feels yeah. less. Uh, it has less weight and, and feels cheaper, I guess, when they all look identical. That makes sense. I don't I, yeah. I don't know how to describe that. But for whatever reason, the feeling isn't the same when you see all the stormtroopers in a line compared to actual like soldiers. And it could just be the martial chants. Like that's that's its own thing, too, for sure. There's that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Tim, how do you feel? Because stormtroopers don't chant. I just wanted to. Yeah, they're silent. Yeah. And terrible because they're Mm -hmm. from the Star Wars cinematic universe. Um, Yeah. No, it's terrible franchise. Yeah. They're not intimidating. Um, I didn't know this would be what I do, but I'm here for it. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'd mentioned at the top that I thought um, the portrayal of the Mentat, Thufir Howitt, he looks very much like the character of Grimm from Advanced Wars, a rather rotund gentleman that's wearing like a all olive jumpsuit. I thought, like you said, that the House Atreides chanting was incredible why can't i think of what they're called now the uh skagar no um the the empire's troops when they've got like the, the guy on the oh Sar- sardaukar yeah, sardaukar when i when i saw them suiting yeah. up they looked like mass effect characters that had like really cool swords and stuff so i was like i'm here for this um the actual fall of the city that they're in on arrakis 
their stronghold. A Raikin? It's yeah. yep. like way more vivid than it was in the books, of course, right? We'd mentioned this before, 75 years, mm-hmm. a lot of time for change here. Um, the military yeah. aspect that I mentioned of the Thropters, where they look like Apache helicopters, is like really, really, really visceral. And it's really cool. I didn't expect this. Well, kind of. Um, that was the vibe I was getting from the book, but to see it is much different than what I imagined. As far as the Thropters go, mm-hmm. you mentioned it before. Was the intention in the books for them to look like dragonflies? No, no I don't think so. Because that's all. I mean, that's all I thought about was like, oh, those are dragonflies. I will read you. I think they're um, described as multi-winged, right. and I think that's the reason, actually, because it's it's relatively loose, if I remember correctly. Uh, that's also why I really thought that the first introduction of the ships on Kaladan also called out to like my mental remembrance of the Omnithropters. I was like, oh, it's like a flat ship that's got like two wings on the top and bottom, and like that when the one that Duncan Idaho gets off. Here of, you go. Um, right this away. This is beginning. why yeah. I imagine a Victorian man in a wicker basket with wings of a doved bird or whatever, right? An omnithropter from the terminology of the Imperium, which is the back portion of the book. Omnithropter, commonly thropter, any aircraft capable of sustained wing beat flight in the manner of birds. So they are not specifically, at least from this definition, called out to be like a dragonfly. Um, which is why, to me, it looked more like mm-hmm. a swooping bird versus the depiction we got, which seeing dragonflies and living in Minnesota, I was like, I'm here for this. So it's great. Yeah. Especially the way that it dies. Oh, it makes fantastic. sense that it's like compared to a bird in that way. But it's even better with the way that the wings fold mm-hmm. back on. Yeah. Only mm-hmm. only gets better from here. We've taken a brief break and we're coming back with the second round of cocktails real quick. So, Tim, what are so, you having? Um, I've taken a lot of health damage so i have returned with two stim packs <laughs> oh boy and he takes yep, one i just took one <laughs> yep and then because there was mashed blackberries all over my kitchen counter i decided to make a blackberry lime tom collins it looks pretty unappealing on our discord video but i think it looks really mm-hmm. good haven't tasted it yet you say blackberry tom collins yep i definitely burned it but it's pretty good <laughs> damn all right cool pj what are you having i have a imperial tiki sour from humble forager called enchanted island so pineapple passion fruit cara cara orange cherry almond and molasses and then if i run out of this i've got 101 proof right <laughs> I hope you run out. <laughs> Just sitting within arm's reach. Um, I am following this up with a vodka tonic mm. uh, with a splash of grapefruit. So just like a little bit of grapefruit in there to give it a nice little citrus twist. So, yeah. Nice. Figured that would be a, a good good way to follow it up. I almost finished my tequila. I did not have enough to make a second of the mark. Otherwise, I was just going to do that. But I only had a shot of tequila left. So I'm hanging on to that for... I don't know. Something else, I guess. Needless to say. All right. Our reload is done here. Let's continue into the rest of the episode. So we were just talking about the military and sort of the way that that is presented on screen, um, the sort of aesthetic. And I had a thought and a question 
obviously there are a lot of scenes like this that are are rendered inside of red rising and this is obviously red rising is obviously very directly inspired from dune in a number of ways not completely but it, it definitely borrows from its you know predecessors like any any work does for the most part um this adaptation gave me some some thoughts about a live adaptation and the way that it could be done uh what'd you guys think how did this make you feel about that? Hmm. Excited for it to to a certain extent. Um, no, I, I think excited for it. I think it proves that something of this scale can be done. We don't get the differences in the sizes of people, though, very much. And that, I think, is what will pose a problem. We, we obviously have forced perspective camera tricks like you see in the Lord of the Rings movies. I don't know if you can do that to the same scale in red rising. That's, that's my biggest concern. Gold's being bigger than me and reds being either way, having an entire group of people, my size interacting Mm -hmm with like smaller groups of people like it's going to be a little bit more difficult to cast or they're going to have to do a lot of force perspective stuff sure okay tim i'm drunk um but the question yeah oh, I, yes welcome welcome I, to the show <laughs> this is what we do well after we like took our intermission a little behind the curtain stuff i went downstairs and I'm like, I'm going to make a couple cocktails. I got downstairs and I'm like, you're making one. Um, but <laughs> so no one has ever heard my I've read all the way to part three of Dark Dark Age. No one has really heard my opinion on adaptation at a podcast level. I don't think it can be done live action. I've kind of stood by that for a while. I also do not want anime or like cartoon style. What I do want is a sort of play on the you know star wars is really bad but clone wars is pretty good um i would want something like that what pj said is my big stickling point for anything live action like we're already in a world where every scene has some level of visual effects in it but now you take something like red rising where obsidians are taller but they also have more fingers um reds are shorter they probably have the same amount of fingers as i do but you know like force perspective is not going to work um in the case of like the hobbit like they had duplicate sets of like hobbiton so that ian mckellen could do one and then uh frodo could do could do that so yeah. you have to duplicate your prop cost and that's just not going to work on the scale it needs to be done especially when you're having to do like prosthetic fingers or whatnot um and the other option is like shoot it in the same set but green screen the taller actors and like literally that what i just said almost made ian mckellen quit acting in the middle of the production of the original hobbit so yes this does make me go oh cool like this is a really good adaptation live action works really good it's not going to work for red rising this way it just won't hot take spicy i don't know no i i'm i'm entirely with you as much as I don't, want right? To I don't be, either. I think I, but this is how do you make that look good and realistic without it looking? This cheesy? is kind of like one of these 
with the amount of work that needs to be done. This is one of these, like, ways you debunk Mm -hmm. a conspiracy theory, like the moon landing. Like, the amount it would have taken for, like, Stanley Kubrick (laughs) to fake the moon landing, we could just go to the moon, right? So, like, in order for us to make Mm -hmm. live-action Red Rising, all right, hope you guys like a weird cast system, because that's the only way we're going to do it. We've kind of got CRISPR. That's the only way... It's really going to work. Um, you could on a movie. <laughs> yeah. You could make a Red Rising movie. But I don't think you could sustain a television series with the amount of special effects that would need to be done, which is why it would have to be like Clone Wars style, I think. Prove me wrong. You know, I think that's a fair. I Well, yeah, again, I think that that will be that will be the challenge, right, is is the prove me wrong aspect of this. But I, I think that I agree with you in the idea of there being it making more sense like force perspective obviously is a very difficult thing to achieve as you've mentioned especially with like you can see some of the table sets that were even done to Mm -hmm. uh make frodo look short like there are a number of those like shots where it like panned out to show the way that that was constructed to make elijah wood look short inside of that scene um and how far back like ian mckellen was standing inside of that scene to like give that force perspective um and there's there's a ton of work that needs to be done there um there, there's, there's some other tricks that would that would get you a certain distance, but then I don't think it would get you across the finish line, right? And that that is the hard part. Um, I would say that this makes all of that feel a little bit more hopeful between this and like the Wheel of Time adaptation and a couple of other things, make it feel more likely. But I do think that what we've mentioned here poses the biggest problem of the series, and the rest of it isn't so bad anymore. And I think the rest of it can mostly be adjusted for with technology or adaptation. But I do feel like one of the biggest things to overcome is a combination of everyone on screen is going to have to look the same because golds all look the same. Like all the colors are very uniform for the most part, which is their own issue Um, outside skin tone. You know, like hair, hair is all the same and eye color is all the same. Um, But then on top of that, yeah. Like that's that's one of the biggest things, and then you add in some of the size the size divider. Um, but I don't feel like the fingers of the obsidian is that big of a deal. There's so many good hand prosthetics. Like that's fairly average at this point. Mm-hmm. I would agree with size though. Like the hands feel like almost inconsequential. But I think the size. Where I can is meet a big you deal. in the middle. Like Donald Trump is concerned about yeah. the size of the hands. <laughs> How dare you? Uh, okay, so <laughs> I just I wanted to bring it up. PJ, would you? Yeah. So, so with that, let's jump back in. So I love the use of um, sign language. I can't remember exactly or precisely what it's called instead of the book right now. Um, but the way that kind of the signals pass between the family and the way that they're kind of talking to the guards, it, it shows kind of some of that interhouse familiarity and really actually builds out the world, I think, in a really nice way. Um you know, and it, it gives a lot of complexity. We have a later character who's deaf, and so the sign language that's hidden is important, and then the voice is important. Um, it, it plants a couple of different Chekhov's guns over the course of the story that pay off, I think, by the end pretty well. Um, what do we think of the adaptation and seeing the... Uh, I, it, it's not. It's obviously not like actual like ASL or anything like that, but it is sign language. Yeah, what do we it think? is a fully developed language. Um, it was actually made by the same guy who wrote uh, Dothraki for Game of Thrones. Oh, interesting. It's a real language. Huh. When when you say wrote by, do you mean the person who adapted it for screen or do you mean the person the who actually who made the Dothraki language? Still didn't answer my question. So the person who made it so that it was on screen <laughs> or the person who put it in the books? Like which 
Who interpreted it for the books? Or... I don't know. Okay. Because, like, one is different that, you know, like, I think it makes sense in the way that it was adapted. That makes sense to me. Where it was a consistent language that he created through hand signals in the same way that he might create a vocal. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Because he could have done both. It was in the it was in the sixties, and he could have been there for R. R. Martin's you know languages in the eighties, nineties. So maybe, yeah, that was well, that was not. that was my question. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a very niche job. It could have worked out. It could have been the same. It could. I mean, you have another question, sir. Um, <laughs> what, what do we think of the languages? Like, what would you think of the presentation on on screen and everything else? I would like to know if the languages that are practiced by, um, not not the sign language, Arduino, that's real, um, are the other languages real? But I do like them. I like. I found myself happy to be reading the subtitles, especially on the Thopter when you know Lady Jessica's signing. That one's the deaf one, or whatever mm-hmm. it was, which was super metal because it's like, oh, okay, so. Use the voice to kill that guy because he's not going to know. Yeah, it's um, I appreciated how subtle the language, like the sign language itself was like it was intentionally created to be a subtle form of communication as opposed to just a nonverbal one. Yeah, like every single hand motion was very, very slight and subtle and can be done essentially hiding it behind your back leg. Um, that said, because of how subtle it was at times and very specifically when Jessica, Lady Jessica, how do you, how do we want to refer Jessica. to Jessica? Yeah. Either way. Uh, when she's sort of in that interview process of the potential handmaid, um, and she notices that she has a, a blade and like is signing like prepare for violence and stuff like that. It zooms in so much on the hand in order to be able to see it that in my first view through, I couldn't tell who was actually signing it. So I'm like, wait, interesting. I thought it was, I thought it was the potential handmaid signing to the guard. Like what the fuck is going on here? Like prepare for violence. Like we're going jointly against Jessica like and that could just be me I I don't remember exactly how like where where my brain was at at the moment but I remember it catching me off guard in kind of a weird way like sure halfway through realizing who's talking so yeah that I don't out. I don't know if that's just me though or if that's a, a relatable issue with the way that that was shot okay that makes sense. Tim, did you have anything more to add to the sign language thoughts? No, not complexities. Well, I can say um, if we're going to invoke him, we better throw respect on his name. Uh, David J. Peterson is the creator of the language in the Dune film, but not the 1984 one because he was born in 1981. Mm, um, okay. He was and a his very title is Conlanger. One, one might call him Aaliyah. That is a joke nah. not for you, PJ. Um, nah. That's a joke for the listeners. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, cool. <laughs> BJ has a thumbs down, and he's taking a drink because he doesn't understand what's going on, which is not a rule, but it should be. The sign language is in Dune. Yeah. The um, Sardaukar language spoken, House Atreides uh, sign language, um, the Fremen sign language, and the Fremen language wow. did it all. Four languages, effectively, for a movie. That's pretty crazy. That's absolutely That's insane. Awesome. And, like, very critical. The way, the, like, Sardaukar, like, chant mm-hmm. comes out is, oh, my oh, God. God. It's great. Ugh. Move. The throat singing. Definitely a, a whole thing. Yeah. Was that throat There's, singing or was it a didgeridoo? No. It was, I it was, it was a didgeridoo. I, it was throat. It was no. the dude talking. I, oh, I don't. In I actuality, it, was it might actual, have been a didgeridoo. Like, I assumed it was a didgeridoo. Let's back up. It it may have been a didgeridoo in reality. However, it was it was the impression was given that it was it was him talking and like throat singing that way. Right. Okay. Like he's he's saying it and that's the way that it sounds. However, it was very likely a didgeridoo. <laughs> I'm like, you know, if you ever wanted to run for office, might I say your ability to backpedal is phenomenal. <laughs> that's exactly what I meant to say. Like, let's understand that mm-hmm. I did not mean to say those things. I did not anyway. PJ, I'm not gonna Bill Clinton. It myself. depends what your definition of is is. <sighs> it's mm-hmm. not not what I was gonna that's not what I meant. I, all that I meant was like, uh, did you let her blow you? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So a fantastic moment in the film, one of my favorite moments in the film, and it's just, it's a small thing, but it, it's, it's that moment. I'm not going to escape this for like a couple of minutes. Am I? I just need to suffer through this. <laughs> It's like one of those childhood lessons that I should have learned. Like, John always used to say, like, think before you open your mouth, and I still haven't figured that out. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck. All right. So the one of my favorite moments in the film is is that uh, between Paul and the the man who's watering the palm trees and the conversation that happens Mm. between them. Um, I think that it kind of it's a very for a movie that has a ton of plot going on and has some character moments tucked inside of that plot, I think that this moment is very revealing of Paul's character, right? This conversation with a person who is kind of preserving this thing is a matter of life and is and is kind of giving giving weight to the, the loss. Like, the water here could have preserved 100 men, but this is important because it maintains a dream is, is a very big thing. Wherein Paul responds kind of immediately with the idea of, well, we should be pragmatic and save those lives, I think it's very interesting. How how did you guys feel about that moment and sort of Paul's pragmatism? Does it say he mentions that they're sacred? Does he mention who they're sacred to? Because we know these palm trees are from off world. They're not native. So presumably whoever brought them would be who they're sacred to. Sacred because they represent a dream. That's why they're sacred. They okay. represent a dream. That's why that's why they're given this treatment is because the it's kind of thinking and like speaking to the idea that maybe one day Arrakis could be terraformed. But maybe. Okay. And that's that's more context from the book. But I, I'm just curious who actually holds that view, because I feel like if the leadership is saying or at least Paul in a, in this moment, he kind of represents the leadership. If he's saying, let's save the people, and if the Iraqis would want to save themselves, or the people, or whoever. <laughs> Iraqis. <laughs> You're going to have to re that not? entire thing. Are I'm they gonna, not I'm Iraqis? 
uh, Iraqians, I think is actually Iraqis. the term. That's All right, that's Eric, but they're absolutely Iraqis. Iraqis. Arakeen is the name of the city. Is the are the people also referred oh, to right. as the Arakeen? I think it's I, I think it's Arakan, like E A N, not Iraqi though. So backing up a second, the trees are sacred because they represent a dream of of like terraforming the world. Okay. So I I would be curious to see how many of the native people actually hold on to that view is pj right did i just see that expression on your face as you went to go read the inside the back of the book and so i didn't see the answer in the glossary under the a's but are we really this stupid the people that live on arrakis are called the fremen (laughs) (laughs) uh i would i was I was under the impression that the Fremen were a specific subset of people. Also that, but yeah, there, there's that combination of things, but you would assume that the rest of them are of the House Atreides, so they are like, what, Cal- Caladrines? Or Cal- can't remember the homeworld perfectly, but you know what I mean. Caladan. Caladan. Caladines? Caladines? Something like that? Well, the the Fremen are... A specific faction opposing the... They're uh, the natives. Like, they're, they are, like, so strictly... So, it, it is anybody who's native to Arrakis is a... F- Correct. Is like, Keens. Okay. Here's, here's the thing. Keens here's is a the friend. lens, right? Like, um, House Atreides and um, the Harkonnens are the two people who've ruled over Arrakis, you know, combined for, like, a thousand <laughs> House Atreides, like, a day. Um, <laughs> like a week but they're always a conquering force so the mm-hmm. fremen are the only inhabitants the, truly right the, everybody else is doesn't belong there which i'm assuming it's not coincidence that they're the free men nod <laughs> yes there, um, there's a very intentional naming term there however it is not like a native term as you'd assume it in everything else it's not like it doesn't follow the convention yeah i i i was i was still like throughout all of it i was under the impression that that was a faction that no they're the, did not they're necessarily the native yeah. they are the only native group okay yeah. right because even the harkonnens and this would be your context inside the movie pj the harkonnens believe that there are only fifty thousand of them Right on the planet, but there were millions after Duncan Idaho like got to know them and understood yeah. the sieges and whatnot. So, and that's so that's like, why um, I assumed it, it wasn't the entire population of the natives on the planet, and rather uh, a a group of people that were opposing the the conquering sure. force. It's just more holistic than you'd imagine. It's just okay. more of a whole group. Yeah. So not that's. Iraqis. Neither Iraqis nor <laughs> Arakeans. Um which Yeah, part of me is wondering if I'm like retconning this from like a future book that like doesn't make any sense, but I don't think I am. I think that it is literally Fremen. Um God. Sometimes in in I that glossary, what is the definition of Fremen? By the way, I know Red Rising does this, but while I'm paging through this and finding it, yeah. A component to my adornment that's a word now it's in the uh, it's in the back adoration so it must be real um my adoration of this book came from going what the fuck is a thopter and i scrolled to the end and mm-hmm. just out of curiosity and i was like 
Oh, okay. Okay, I'm got it. this shit. Yeah. To, I'm not allowed to, kinda, to read those. To kind of, it's true. I actually prevent people, PJ, from reading them because it can spoil. I shit. don't think there's any spoilers in here, which is nice. That is um, nice. The free tribes of Arrakis, dwellers of the many. desert, remnants of the Zensuni wanderers, sand pirates, according to the Imperial Dictionary. That so, does that not sound like, like the entire population of the planet. It is, though. Yeah, it is. Is a unified culture. The other part, the other part of this that's like hard to grasp from. Well, it's it's not strictly listed from the movie. Is that like humanity has spread out across the universe over a period of ten thousand? I, I think it's actually fifteen thousand years from where we are at on Earth right now, or Old Terra, as the, it's called. The movie takes place. I would assume the book does in the same time in the year ten ninety one. Holy shit, ten one nine one. But that's BG, I think, if I remember correctly. Oh, okay. And there's oh, some, there's like a five thousand year span. Well, kinda. That's like there were there was a hundred year war basically that happened with the AI, um, and there were like five thousand years before that that were like transitionary. Anyway, I think that's roughly the time scale. Again, loose memory on this. Read it a long time ago and have like just been refreshing, of course, because of the book or the movie rather. But. Regardless, just thinking about this scene in context of the movie itself, I think it's very character driving because it it, it shows that Paul is very much pragmatic. Like he is thinking about saving as many people as he can at this point. And he's thinking about providing for all the people that could be hurting and dying. He's having these visions of Fremen out in the desert. He's having he's having all these visions about different people. And he sees the suffering of Arrakis and believes that it's it's good. But at the same time, he's like. The the gardener's like, no, this is this is kind of a symbol like, yes, this is sort of this is like nobility in its own way. And this is like pride maybe beforehand. But at the same time, it symbolizes a hope that maybe this world can change and like grow. And like this maintenance that I'm giving it could be something in the future. Um, and it provides that hope that this isn't just the dune that we see. I really like that scene. It's okay. I can just really like that scene because I've seen it six times. That might be it. Um, it's good. <laughs> anyway, the introduction of Javier Bardem's uh, Stilgar is a strong one and a great example of how this movie does such a good job world building. We've talked about a number of other moments. Um, him spitting on the table as well as the second appearance of the Chris knife, this thing that a number of Fremen are unwilling to part with um, from the Shalahulud. Shalahulud? Uh, fucking the the worm, um, the worms. But what um, do we think? So this scene specifically, I enjoyed it, but in subsequent watches, I felt like the um, the bodyguard. What what is what is his position? The guy that's always Gurney. You're talking like Josh Brolin's character. Yeah, Gurney Halleck. Yeah, how how aggressive he is constantly about like defending the duke's like position and honor and physical well-being it's a little over the top constantly and you'd think there'd be some more um information i guess i think think what you're portraying though is the difference between gurney halleck who's like an emperor's man for an emperor's man like he is he is a house of trades he is like your 
standard bearer. He's the dude that stands out front that is like, there's nothing better than exactly our military might and whatever. And then, but then you've got Duncan Idaho, who like understands culture. And you get that kind of juxtaposition between those two characters who are both in similar but different positions. They're even compared a couple of times um, from from dialogue. Even Peter DeVries knows both of their names. Pete, I keep saying Peter. It's Piter. But it seems like more of a problem of the dissemination of information on the culture. Like he is completely unaware of the culture that he's well, stepped into. He he's an imperialist to that point. To to your exact point, okay. he is like an imperialist. Meanwhile, Duncan Idaho is like trying to understand so they could get a better foothold naturally without. Okay being so invasive and that's why especially duncan idaho's dialogue makes a ton of sense because the harkonnens thought that there were only fifty thousand people and he again unearthed that million plus millions population i i i get that i get that entirely it just for whatever reason today when i was rewatching, it just Mm -hmm. seemed overbearing how often he stepped in it's a short scene too i mean yeah there's that but even even yeah. before that, though, and I can't remember so, what situation. So but at the top of the episode, I had mentioned that there were two things in this movie that, if they kind of met my expectations, it would determine whether or not I really liked this movie or not. And obviously, I didn't judge off of that. But in the end, yeah, <laughs> one of those two was this scene, and I did not like it at all. Let me take one step back to and address Crossland's previous point about the pine trees, right? I think what that really represented for Paul in this moment is in this book, we get a ton of examples of Paul kind of like living out to like best principles, right? Like you briefly see this at the end of the movie in the tent where he talks about like, I don't want a holy war in my name and all this. He's clearly a kid that is like very well um, considerate to other people and very um, compassionate but he um, dreams of and, the holy war in his name and he doesn't want that. Right. Yeah. Right. And so we see this in the pine tree scene, right? Or mm-hmm. uh palm tree, not pine tree. I'm drinking yeah. um yeah. gin, so that's ah. you know Freudian. Um <laughs> when we get kind of to Duke Leto, he's known in the book as Duke Leto the Just, right? Like so he's known as this guy that is kind of like very honorable and we don't see enough of that. This scene is one of those touches that happens in the book that kind of shows you what kind of leader Duke Leto is slash was. Um, <laughs> and I have a passage that I'm going to kind of read through. I don't actually remember this part because, again, I've read this quite a while ago. Um, when Stilgar comes to that council room in the book, it's very clear that a Fremen had died at some point with the, um, Duncan Idaho, their interaction. So he's coming there kind of with almost a chip on his shoulder. Um, and one thing that's interesting is just like in the movie, he isn't allowed in because he has this Chris knife, but he's allowed in. Um, one thing he says when he gets in there is Duke Leto says, I am the Duke Leto. Uh, would you permit me to see your blade? And Stilgar responds, I'll permit you the I'll permit you to earn the right to unsheath it, which is very clearly like mentioning like what happens at the end of the movie, right? Like right. you can have it. You have to kill me. You have to kill me. So they're already this is a ritual. Starting, yeah. Right. And they're already starting from this place of high tension. Um, skipping but Leto doesn't know through. that tension. Like Leto doesn't understand that tension yet. Well, I think at that moment he does because on the next page it, it mentions 
on the next page it mentions Halleck and several other of several of the others started to rise with angry expressions on their face. Halleck said, "The Duke Leto determines whatever." Boom, he's cut off. Um, Duke Leto kind of interrupts, and he's now caught. He's now he's now got the script here, um, and so he kind of says a whole thing about like. Um, Sir, I honor and respect the personal dignity of any man who respects my dignity. He goes on, but ends ultimately with saying, if there's any other way that we may honor the man who died in your service, you have but name it. It is at that moment that the Fremen, Stilgar, reveals his face and spits on the table. Whereas in the film adaptation, he basically walks in without his Chris Knife and spits on the table. Yeah, and he walks in with his Chris Chris knife. He does have his Chris knife. He's not excuse me. Yeah, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. He, he yeah he did have it right. But we went through yeah, the whole charade right. of let him in. I don't care. But we skipped all of this pertinent information that shows what kind of person Duke Leto is. Right. He's very like you wouldn't ex- like the parallels we talked about earlier with like Fremen being on this planet mm-hmm. and the um, Harkonnen Harkonnens being an yeah. occupying force. You would expect kind of like similar connotations to like imperial or not imperialism, but um, colonialism, right? Yep. In the treatment of Native Americans. Duke Leto mm-hmm. is like literally coming out of the gate saying like, you are like me. You have the same or you have the same dignity as long as you give it back to me, like some golden rule shit, right? So I was frustrated so much by this scene because it kind of. All right. It's a spicy take nuclear again. I'm not a big Marvel movie guy. I don't like how there's this Hollywood trend of kind of making quips and jokes in otherwise serious scenes. The spit scene in this one felt cheesy. Hmm. It's not like MCU joke level, but compared to what I just read you, it is a fundamentally different scene. Um, So I was disappointed by that in the adaptation, but it's still fine. I still got to see the value of, like human fluid or whatever, right? Like your own your own water, right? Mm-hmm. The water price. I still got to see that. So I fine. think I think a big part of that is the fact the way, especially Duke Leto, 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 kind of snorts to the point of hawking a loogie before mm-hmm. spitting on the table. Like is that's not that doesn't seem to be the point, and it kind of almost made a mockery of it but maybe that's just it could just be out of ignorance of the tradition i i could be i don't know i i would actually kind of agree with you in comparison to duncan idaho's spit right like it it seems but it also might just be he did too that's one of those strange like small nuances that's like crazy to get into especially in like a rewatch but you know like specifically the way that he spits like that's interesting um duncan idaho also kind of snorted before spitting a little bit not as much but i i just want to address the the last point of tim's thing because i i actually very much agree with the first part right like it does it does undermine some of the duke's understanding or ability to understand and like amend himself to believe in someone else's culture or agree with it um it, it shorthands it very hard like it, it does clip that scene down um to make him it, it takes a little bit away from the just like it, it would be it would be given a little bit more weight if it were if it were portrayed a little bit closer in terms of the importance of the chris knife and the tension inside of that scene 
I would I, I would say that I don't feel like the read on Duncan Idaho though myself doesn't feel like it was played like in I, I understand where what, what you're comparing it to like the MC level MCU level joke. It felt like a moment of character building and world building that you could do well, in text that you that. have to translate to that you have to translate to film. I didn't feel like it was a joke. It felt very serious because it felt tense because it felt like it in the other way, it felt like an insult to Leto, right? But in fact it was a it was the opposite, right? You know what I mean? Right. Like I'm in, I don't in I'm your not initial view. Duncan sure. specifically feels like the, the MCU gag, right? But the 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 scene as a whole feels like mcu gag worthy oh um, i didn't get that at all it feels like a very it feels like a very personal yeah, I, moment that's the i my immediate reaction was disrespect on the part and i was like that's a change from the book that shouldn't be that way like when he spat first and i was like that's interesting and then when it when it like came to terms i was like oh yeah they did that scene basically as far as i could remember but and the reason why i'm being so like particular yeah. on this too um i did struggle with this book originally that was that exchange in the epiphany i had when it's revealed a couple lines of dialogue later that duncan says like no uh sir this is you know this is an honorable thing he just did or he's reciprocating in a in a way that you would with a handshake it was that moment that i went "Ooh, this book is fucking cool so Mm -hmm. i had uh, when i saw that in the in the notes i'm like i deeply need to find this page and like bring up what that means to me versus the adaptation again i love the adaptation i adore the book so it's fine and and that makes sense yeah i uh i get that um so we we can't go through a conversation with dune without talking about the spice right spice is obviously an allegory at the time back in the 60s uh to oil in a large way and like the impending crisis in a number of different ways and sort of the way that it would lead the economy forward and its importance there um if nothing else one of the things that makes dune very different from a lot of its contemporaries at the time when thinking about sci-fi is that it took it removed a lot of technology immediately to try to speak to philosophical and economic commentary like that's that's its focus more than technological commentary so this in particular is a very interesting thing tackling spice because it is it is both like the core of the series and the way that a lot of things operate but it is also kind of a macguffin in the way that it can move it 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 is the propellant for the story in the first act but also it is a recurring thing so it, Calling it a MacGuffin almost feels wrong to me because it, it is so prevalent in the story, um, but it kind of has it has its place there. So how do we feel about Spice? Like, what's the what's the read on Spice, especially from just seeing the movie, PJ? I don't think MacGuffin is the right term for it. I think it is the backbone of the, the world. Yeah, it's the backbone of the universe. Also, like, it, 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 I don't think calling it just kind of a... MacGuffin always feels throwaway to me, which feels like it's wrong, which is why I was like, it's kind of exactly it's it's something that exists strictly to move the plot forward. Right. And doesn't actually have any meaningful. That's the conventional definition. However, a lot of people refer to it as the MacGuffin of Dune. So like at the same time, you just there's there's a cultural understanding. And I disagree with it in the same way that you do. But I think 
it, it doesn't matter so much to our interpersonal relationships within the story, but the story doesn't exist without it. Like it's the entire, it is the, it is the hinging point on the spacefaring population. It's an economic driver, which is why it feels different. It's not even economic. It's a, it's a technological driver. Yeah. Which is like, it's right. It's everything at its core. It's economic, but yeah. Yeah. But they they straight up say without spice, interstellar, interstellar travel isn't possible. Correct. I, which means that that's everything, which means that the economy is important, which, yeah, anyway, point being, we're anyway, both correct. It, we're leading it, into the same point. I think, I think it's more important than just a plot device, but at the same time, pushing that back and like just accepting that as fact, like this is necessary and going forward makes sense. But at the same time, there you go with the oil kind of comparison. Tim is holding something in right now. I just had an epiphany. Yeah. Okay. It's <laughs> probably only going to be funny for me. Spice yeah. would be so much cooler if it was fucking asbestos instead. <laughs> like, okay, hear me out. This is probably deranged as fuck. Okay, so you said 1960s, which is what made yeah. me think of this. So spice is like a mineral deposit, right? Do you know how they make asbestos? They don't. They no. mine the shit. Dude, oh. you can make clothing out of asbestos. You can make, like, like the space shuttle, like the heated tiles. I don't think they're yeah. made out of asbestos. Well, they but were. you could have totally yeah. made those out of asbestos. Because um, it literally means, like, Greek shit for, like, this stuff doesn't burn. Dude. <laughs> we had okay, thermal so, like, pads in high school, in our chemistry labs. We had thermal, like, hot pads made of yeah. pure yeah. asbestos. Asbestos is, like, the best miracle thing on the planet. The only problem is it gives you mesothelioma. Like, that's, like, literally the only problem. You get cancer. We, we have hotlines for that parallel. shit. Like, why are we not okay with asbestos when we can get, like, compensation for it so easily? <laughs> <laughs> it's, too, it's too bad that, like, inhaling asbestos doesn't give you bright blue eyes and, like, spacefaring capabilities and additional cognitive function. Yeah, Your lungs would just be bleeding. That's all. Like, it's, hey. but it's other the same thing. I don't know, but that's that just popped in my head when you said 1960s. I was like, I was like, it's not oil, Crossland. It's clearly asbestos. Um, <laughs> whatever. Um, I think it's a MacGuffin of some sort. But one thing I don't have a clear answer on is, um, who who's like the primary consumer of spice? Is it Mentats? I know it's kind of it's my the space right? faring guild. It's space faring guild. So it's the people who actually drive each of the ships. Um, so which, it's like giving people meth. It's the navigators, right? The navigators specifically, yes, um, on each of the ships. But why? Uh, it's it's not okay. So th- this is so clearly answered in the first ten pages of Dune Messiah that I don't want to explain it. But okay. at the same time, I can I can barely say without talking about it too deeply. Effectively, you're not wrong talking about drug addicts because like it's really no different than like addiction to anything else which they also say in the beginning in the first two books of the series which is what the movie covers that is a highly addictive drug it's like a narcotic um and we also understand that the navigators require it in order to use space travel so like there are other descriptions and other things but yeah 
to, to go to a historical context, we did do um, in in like the the Blitzkrieg. Literally, there was chocolate infused with methamphetamine in yeah. order for like the Germans to be able to push over to France. Like that's right. just how it happened. So my brain was always like, okay, so there's like methed out. Um, Mentats that are just like really blazing through those community or it's a different guild. And- it's a different guild. It's not okay. Mentats. It's okay. a it's a separate okay. organization. But yeah, sorry, PJ, I think you were going to say something. It mentions in the narration or in the um, the exposition exposition device that Crossan talked about earlier. Yes, the, uh, yeah, the-, the court sort of like hologram history channel. Okay. The podcast, the visual podcast documentary. Uh, Words and whiskey. It says something along the lines of being able to avoid the pitfalls of space travel. Something like that. Like it Mm -hmm. it gives them the ability and they talk about it being a a hallucinogen. Mm -hmm. So it, it gives them some sort of sight, which I am assuming is the same kind of thing that the Bene Gesserit have innately. And that like Paul experiences when he inhales, right? Because when like he, he goes into the different spiceful environments, including the tent, including other things like that, he has those kind of flashes of, of what we assume is the future potentially, or the future that he sees. Right. Yeah. Which Bene Gesserit, that over, that overlaps. I was just clarifying. Um, Speaking am, of, the am tent, I saying it right? Um, Bene Gesserit? Yeah, that's right. Benny Jesuit. Yep. Speaking of the tent, one thing that bothered me is that I've read the word combination, the portmanteau, if you will, of sphincter door like 500 times in reading Dune the book. It's uh, Frank Herbert's gambit. Was that sphincter door on the sphincter tent, door? <laughs> he always talks about the sphincter door. Every time that like Lady Jessica and Paul are setting up the tent, Paul quickly dove through the sphincter door. <laughs> like it's it's everywhere. The only reason that you could imagine that being very important in the language is to like keep out the dust, right? Because it would be tight and it would like only fit you through like at a reverse. Like you can imagine that very viscerally and it's upsetting. Believe it or not, Crossland, I do have an asshole and I know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I just got that. It's not what I meant. I was roasted so thoroughly, and you also self-roasted yourself so hard at the same time, and it was too good. It was too good. Oh my god! All right. So, Perfect. as the only surviving member of this podcast, I will continue. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway uh so we, we were just talking about the visions we we were just talking about spice obviously in kind of its place um I, i'd be curious about your opinions about paul's visions pj so i noticed throughout the film and i didn't really pay attention to this until i yeah. saw this question um and i didn't watch the film since seeing this question, but, um, it seemed like they were very disjointed and very like quick and sort of flashes of visions. And slowly as time got on, they got longer and longer and more clear. And my assumption is, is 
that means he's getting more and more in tune with it and more and more true to the Ooh, okay. sort of future prediction kind of deal. Because he, he mentions that he doesn't necessarily have dreams and they're always exactly as he dreams them. But I feel like visually as they get less disjointed, more jointed? Longer, yeah. That, more more jointed. More, Many is, more is joints. Is that an actual term? Additional elbows, please, on these dreams. Less, less disjointed. Um, I assume that means it's more true. I have no idea if that is correct, but that's what I'm thinking. Often, and before we move this to Tim, of course, and the way that he feels about this, I, I just want to kind of follow up with this a little bit. Um, dreams in fiction are often considered detrimental to storytelling for a number of reasons. They can feel very cheap. They can feel very shorthanded. They can they can shortcut a lot of the storytelling potential. Did you feel any of that in, in your viewing of this, or did you feel like it was... No, because we knew, because we saw conflict in them. We we saw conflicting views, specifically. Okay. Um, yeah. When he's talking about his first views, his first dreams of Arrakis, there are completely like non-continuous or non uh, non-canonical. What's the right term? They they don't work with Incor- each other. Yeah, sure. Incompatible. Conflicting. Conflicting. That's the right that's the right way to put it. English. It's hard when you're drunk. It's cool. We're here. And it's hard when you're sober. <laughs> like it's not I mean, an easy language. Um But con- conflicting visions. Like they can't f- all be correct. From what we've seen. So for that reason, it is unreliable. And because it's unreliable, it doesn't feel cheap. Makes it feel okay. It feels like less like clairvoyance in that way because it feels as though something has been proven wrong. It okay. can be wrong. It it has to be wrong at some point. Okay. So because it has to be wrong, it can be wrong. And because it can be wrong, it doesn't feel cheap. Tim, how do you feel about the visions and the depictions therein? Yeah, um, so reading the book again, um, we don't meet Chaney, which is the first time anyone has said her name in this podcast so far. I think, rightly so, I think Zendaya does a great job, but majority of the visions of her throughout the movie, I was like, okay, like, because they're slow-mo too. I'm like, come on, let's get back to, we've got a lot of ground to cover. We don't need, like, 20 seconds of Zendaya walking through a canyon right now, which is good because it's it's like in the story right so you do need to see that connection to make it feel organic but i feel like the visions are more powerful in text than they were in the movie (laughs) no i thought the visions were fine i just you know i a jaded fourth wall part of me was like there's only this much screen time of Zendaya right now because she's top billing on the thing and Chaney's gonna be a huge part of part two so yeah. I'm fine with it, but they were better in the book. And I hate to be that guy, this whole podcast who's going, this book is better than the movie, but they're both bangers. So fine. Yet the, there's a brutal reality here that we'll, we'll confront, I think, in a second once we actually hit the end of this, which is that this is very clearly a two-part movie. 
and that is important to talk about once we get to the end um but again then i think the payoff might be pj might even have a better i don't know we'll we'll figure that out once we hit the end of this so yeah i i feel you on the the chani thing for sure um i like that we each say a different pronunciation for each character because we read it and then you know i don't know one of the things that i liked the most about the depiction of world building here was the moment when we are on uh Seleucia Segundus and we see the bloodletting of the unworthy Sardaukar. So PJ, you don't know this, but when the, all those men that were inverted and clearly being bled for their blood into the pools and the rain, and then it was poured onto the armor to like signal the 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 soldiers that were worthy, that is a crazy brutal depiction of like what really goes on that's like the end result of the the sort of transpiration of for instance let's just compare this to what we know um this is like the passage of the institute if only so many kids make it through these are the kids that died in the passage hung upside down bled to paint the armor of the warriors that are about to go into combat okay so they pass through and they are they are now the holy warriors getting their peerless scars, and that is the blood of those who lost. And that is a crazy depiction in a very quick shorthand that can be lost mm-hmm. fairly easily. And I, I think it's mostly meant for the eagle-eyed viewer to like really kind of get the full picture. So it's not I wouldn't expect you to understand that entirely. However, how'd you feel about the brutality of that scene? Like it clearly they're inverted men. Like that is this is this is a brutal depiction this is the emperor like this is this is the top it felt confusing okay i guess without the context it felt out of place i shouldn't have given you the context before i asked but no the context makes sense i can't undo that but it it felt out of place It, it felt weird i interesting i don't i don't know how to put it beyond that it just i didn't i didn't know what to make of it and i i couldn't i couldn't figure out how to justify it in the moment but that makes more sense yeah i i did the thing that i've avoided doing in the regular (laughs) show for so fucking long and justifying something because i had less time with the notes than i do on average whoops um but yeah All, all told I don't think I would have given a different answer. I don't think that changes my answer. I I think I was confused by it. I threw in my brother's answer here just because we we discussed this briefly and I asked kind of the same question. And basically his response was, there was clearly something more and they clearly fucked up. (laughs) That was like his response as to why they were being sacrificed. And I was like, yeah, that's good fair and valid and you know there there are a number of reads there it asks questions it asks questions of like what goes on to lead them to be these like inverted men and i think that that's kind of the i don't know the whole thing i loved it from like a it, that felt like one of the few moments of like direct there there's several but that was one of the few moments of like direct fan love that was given to like if you know you know but otherwise you know it's just like indirect world building Mm-hmm. yeah tim how'd you feel about the yeah that was cool i was i was like the touches they have been giving on stuff like that i don't think i can say it any better than you did though okay 
Enjoyed it. I uh, I think I totally ruined your perspective, PJ, and I'm sorry. Uh, no, you, you didn't. Like, <laughs> no, genuinely, I, I think that would have been my answer either way. Got it. Having the context makes it make more sense. Sure. That makes sense. This movie, like the series that it inspires, uh, that that we've read and talked about recently, doesn't fuck around with death at all and, and kills off a lot of characters very violently and suddenly, which adds a very, I think, weightiness to individuals' decision-making like the decisions that uh, our protagonist Paul makes, like Rebecca makes. Yeah, I, I've, I think it adds kind of a weighty weightiness in, in Duncan until he also chooses his own death. I think each one is fairly striking. What did you make of each of the kind of different deaths that we experience over the course of the film? The obvious choice for me is going to be Kynes. The death is drastically different in the film than it is in the book. Um, in the book, I believe he, in the book, he is captured and then kind of like what they were going to do with Paul and Lady Jessica kind of just like thrown out in the sand and we didn't kill them, but they died. And in that moment, Kynes is walking around and they, they actually hear the voice of their father, who is also on the planet as a planetologist. And it's kind mm-hmm. of this really interesting dialogue about like reflecting on life. And then also like, was the side air quotes was the side you were on right like did you tell too much information did you tell not enough it's very like different what i will say is there really wasn't enough time to explore kinds character deeper in the movie so this like sacrificial i'm not losing to you you're losing to me and like we're both going down by this worm i thought it was fine i wanted a bit more but i'm very happy with what i got out of that and generally yeah I liked all the death. It's good. So yeah. <laughs> what I didn't so much like about that was knowing how long previously, knowing how long it takes a worm to get somewhere mm. and then being able to summon it within a couple seconds by punching the ground a couple of times. It was the thumper. It wasn't punching the ground. A thumper is very different. She, she was, she was punching the ground. She planted a thumper. She planted a thumper. And then punch the ground elsewhere to, like, lead it more directly to them in post. Gotcha. The thumper was meant to get the dudes because she thought that she could escape and, like, grab onto it and ride it. That's what she was planning to do. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She, she like, whips out the things. You saw this at the end of the movie, right? Which is, you know, we're not going to talk about what that that thing was, right? But she was going to ride the fucking worm, which... Like the person at the very end of the movie did, which isn't. We're not going to talk about that. Yeah, it it isn't. Um, that's not a Chekhov's gun. You never see someone riding a worm until that very moment. Like you don't mm-hmm. see any of that. So again, wouldn't assume that you might know that unless you'd seen the like the David Lynch Dune, <laughs> like, and then you would be very aware because that is the worst and simultaneously best scene in the entire movie. Um, <laughs> Got to watch it now. Uh, it's so fucking ridiculous. Um, the whole thing's like a fever dream. You got to be very drunk to experience it properly. But yeah, so she maybe she's like a, throwing out things. She's maybe that's she's a Patreon preparing. thing. Oh, do like a, a that would actually be pretty fun. But anyway, the the point being, like she's she's prepping to ride this and she's trying to distract, like bring the worm close, but not too close. But only when she gets shot. Is it a shot? She's shot, right? 
I think I by believe one of the she's hunter. stabbed actually or she might be stabbed oh yeah she's totally stabbed snuck up on and stabbed yeah. that's when when she's down on the ground she starts thumping to lead it directly to her right okay. and we don't know how much time passed between the thumper and her hitting the sand mm-hmm. but thumpers are the most aggressive mm-hmm. again book but like the most aggressive calling cards they hit a very specific rhythm other other than shields yes shields are the worst yeah shields put them into a rage but yeah i can agree with that that's that's a crazy moment and i think that death that change of that death is both a shift thematically for the character because they had less time mm-hmm. to develop which makes sense but it's also it is a world building death like and that's that's what it does is paints a right. larger picture of the world so it's it's a tough choice but every once in a while you have to sacrifice a tactus so that a rope can grow you know <laughs> can i leave this <laughs> i had to make a shitty joke about rogue at some point in the show we're we're almost out i'm almost out of time to talk about rogue so it's it's just gonna or make jokes about rogue but pj did you have any other deaths that like hit you struck you i i liked duncan's to a certain yeah. extent um, oh yeah yeah that was fucking sad i fucking cool I it was cool. It was dramatic. Like, I don't know how I can expand on that. I guess it sure. was it was a sacrifice. It was putting honor not not honor. Uh, putting duty above self preservation, which makes sense for his character and was well done. Uh, just well well shot. Well done. Cool. I think the one that hit me the hardest in in this is um. The death of Leto every time. Uh, the entire scene there, oh, oh, especially yeah, with Harkonnen, uh, when like he bites into. So a like the initial like he knows that he's going to die when he gets shot in the back with a, the hunter dart is is a whole thing, of course, Yule Way and whatnot. But then when he's inside of the dining room inside of that dinner, which in theory, this is why I think that there is an extended version of that scene. It's meant to call back to that same room. In an extended cut, I think the one of the scenes that you for sure add is that dining scene that we were talking about earlier, because it would call back in a right way to see Harkonnen eating at the same table that the rest of the family would be. Anyway, you see him at the end of the table, completely buck ass naked, stripped of all of his Leto the Just stripped down to like nothing. And then Harkonnen crawling across the table, killing you like cutting his head off and then going over to kill Lido and biting into the tooth. Peter Pitter P- Pit Piter Piter. Thank you. Uh, Piter Devries dying almost immediately. The 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 Baron shrinking up into the top corner of the room. All of that is just it's it's fantastic. It's sad. It's tragic, and it hit me right. And it still hits me right in the in the viewing that I watched today. I that was the moment in which my heart went like. It was, it was a positive thing because it's like, fuck yeah, good for you. But at the same time, I was just crushed by the fact that like he had to make that choice in a hope to save his family. That is the thing that, I, you know, I've been um, kind of switching back and forth on like, oh, the book does this better. It's better than the adaptation. I will say that scene plays out way better in the film than it did in the book. I, I think so. And I, I think that, again, one being an adaptation of the other, like, you you have to kind of pick and choose, and I think that is a great example of one of those that does play out better. And, you mm-hmm. know, like, you can't do everything perfect. It's an 850-page book, and you're only covering, like, 550 pages in this first movie. But, you know, they do it, 
I think a great job all around. That's that's my death. That's what resonated with me. So it's a good pick. One of the things that is often talked about in the story, of course, and PJ very curious here, um, is the use of las guns. And we never get the word las guns inside of the movie. However, we do see two different examples. One is a giant spaceship. Uh, that is carving through the world. And the second is a group of soldiers that is carving through a door, meaning that, you know, it can cut through anything. Uh, They're kind of seemingly innocuous, innocuous, not innocuous. Um, But PJ, I want to, I want to hear what you think about last guns before we blow this up real quick. I mean, Uh, and weaponry in general, maybe is even like a better thing to some degree. I'm kind of confused by the entire idea. It's not, expounded upon um you should be (laughs) i i am at a loss and i want to know more so crossland i love you dearly but we have entered my domain so i'm gonna ask a couple probing questions to you pj um what do you think about the way combat is described and plays out as it pertains to the scene with gurney halleck and paul in the beginning of the movie with the shields and the swords what do you think? Just hit me hot. Um, just in general, like, yeah. What do you think? Is it, is it dumb? Like, is it like, oh, why the fuck are they using swords? Or, or, or is it? Oh, it's cool. It's swords. No, it makes total sense with the specific note of the slow, the slow blade pierces the shield because the shields that they use specifically repel impact so understand based on that phrase i under, my understanding was the shields negate intense impact so something slowly going through it like think about any sort of like the, the what is it um cornstarch and water how if you like hit it super yeah, hard a, it's, a non-newtonian it's, fluid exactly exactly yes so um impact makes it rigid but you can just kind of push your finger through it if you want to so understanding that makes the use of blades make sense so i'm going to ask one other thing off of that so when dr ua dart guns uh duke leto you notice that's a very small point at the end of the movie Paul also has a similar weapon that has a small point. So is it just slow blades or is it other types of things can break the shield barrier? Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm stuck thinking of it like a non-neutronian sure. fluid, uh, which, which would be susceptible to some sort of puncture at a small enough size like that. Perfect. Yeah. So when, when the book kind of plays out the scene with Gurney Halleck, I don't know if this is the case, but I envision the swords as being less the kind of short swords that they are um, and being more almost like fencing because it's kind of told to Paul that like a slash is not preferable to a poke. So it feels more like fencing to me. Yeah. And a thing that was a barrier for me, which is why I wanted to ask you this, is one of the things that was hard for me in Red Rising was knowing that there's all these like sci-fi worlds that we live in but they're using like swords and bows and weird shit like that right yeah and then i had the same problem in dune where i was like they they canonically call the compounds castles they don't call them like you know 
space or whatever right so i was like man this feels like knights in shining armor with like some weird space motif and so i didn't really like it until i got deeper into the book now bringing this back to the movie when you saw basically like orbital bombardment and then people sword fighting in the streets how did that hit you does that did you like that did you did you kind of wish there were firearms or something in that mix yes and no i i think the existence of those shields requires a certain tactical approach to the army itself and that approach makes firearms really difficult to implement sure okay so it's hard to mix those two styles of combat because because of the close quarters nature of trying to slowly poke through the uh the individual shields or be super precise and fast right like those darts you can't really have like a flechette cannon or something like that you know that probably wouldn't work very well yeah exactly and that seems to be something it has to be both extremely fast and extremely thin which would hypothetically make it pretty fragile Mm -hmm. which would mean you'd need something very specifically created in order to be strong enough to withstand the speeds required to be fired at a velocity high enough in order to penetrate the the shield um which all of that together makes it probably pretty cost prohibitive to be armed with all of the um infantrymen or something right. like that and so well, it'd be easier just to too, right? give them short swords you know Right, and here's another thing to think about, too. The uh, Sardaukar, they're fighting in full body armor, right? Like, when we were seeing this early scene, uh, Gurney Halleck is not wearing... He's wearing, like, you know, plain clothes. But the Sardaukar they're being attacked by, they're wearing full Kevlar helmets, everything. So even if you were to make a bullet pierce that shield, it's probably not going to be better than just, like, cutting a guy's head off, right? Or stabbing him. So I think it works really well. I now want yeah. to ask you about laser guns, but I want to make sure Crossland has covered all the sword stuff he wants. I think you killed it. I think that for the most part, like you hit a lot of the conversation. Okay, the, cool. the biggest thing is sort of the realistic depiction of how do you make like swords work inside mm-hmm. of a like semi sci-fi fantasy world. Um, we'll, we'll talk about laser gun. You'll talk about laser guns in a second here. I would just throw into the or i would i would agree with you that it feels very believable and i also think specifically that the depiction that denny has nailed here with the vfx scene and everything else is perfect because mm-hmm. even in the book it's it's like it's described and you can like you can believe it if you like let yourself believe it but this is this is visible it feels physical the color it feels it's great the color differences are fantastic. That's that's a great like lead in. But for me, I think the big thing is that it feels like the sword is really resisting the shield as though it's being repulsed yeah. like a magnet with an opposite magnet pointed the other way. And I think that is so important to something like this. And this would be something that like if Red Rising gets the or when Red Rising gets the adaptation, like it, it this needs to be a huge focus on the VFX and general action directing side is to ensure that you don't understate or overstate the pulse shield and like its importance in some things it is not important in razor combat of which i see pj already flinching at but i just want to com comment that it is definitely important in everything else because it's the only reason that like pulse fists aren't used 
entirely instead of razors. So for me, with the comparison to Red Rising, I this made me dislike the combat and razor versus um, pulse shield sort of interaction within Red Rising because it's so well done here, if that makes sense. Because the logic well, it's not as makes well done so in the much books, more though. like no, no, but the lo- the logic actually makes sense here. Correct, because you're level? visually yeah, right. You're you're winning because of the adaptation. You're winning no, because it, of the visual. The specifically the line, the slow blade pierces the armor or pierces that's the not, shield. That's not that is like the line that works inside of the book, but that is not no, the way. But that's what makes the entire physical thing make sense here. What what you're missing, PJ, is that the book didn't do it this well. And okay. the movie is lending credence to it. So this is the adaptation Fair. flexing its muscles and being like, it's better if I turn this into something visual. And yeah. also, true Dune nerds could call me on my shit here. But I do believe, too, when Gurney Halleck is teaching um, how to how to do this fighting properly. Actually, this plays out somewhat in the adaptation, but they don't fully dive into it. Remember how their truce or their stalemate ends with... Um, Paul's knife to Two Alex's head, right, yep. right, but or to his throat, and then Gurney Halleck's got one pointed up at him. Mm-hmm. I believe in the book, Gurney Halleck's like, we have met a truce, but my blade is truer than yours. And then Paul's like, oh no, but like, ah oh man, like, could have cut you or whatever. And, and Gurney Halleck's like, that your most important thing is to kill your enemy, but the set, or, but, but he's like, but if you're like going for style points. You want to puncture, you don't want a slow slice. It's more effective. Granted, the adaptation, you know, pretty much is all slices, not really stabs. But my point is kind of, it's more kludgy in the book. You're just going to have to believe me on that one. It was a okay. very hard sticking point for me. That, yeah, that's totally fair. I just, all I remember about the razor versus pulse shield interaction Razors was... Razors go straight through pulse shields. Because... And explicitly, I I believe, contextually, it says because they're sharp enough to go through it. And that never made a whole lot of sense to me. You may be correct. Um, you may be correct that it is sharp enough to go through it. But on top of that, uh, it's not. A- I just cool. I liked the physical description of the logic associated with the shields. And it made me more critical of the shields in Red Rising. <laughs> ask another question <laughs> okay great um so so now we're gonna focus on laser guns right you saw in the raid on the what is some like research base right that that kinds is at you see a low slung kind of like a chain gun or something like that right like it's a it's a low slung weapon pack um and it's bursting through this wall seemingly melting everything in sight cross an earlier mentioned too. you saw a beam come down from a frigate in orbit presumably that you can take to be laser gun fire or projectile whatever whatever you want to call it a stream coming out of a laser gun without any prompts do you know why you do not see laser guns taking out ground infantry not a clue so consider that the laser gun is able to, you know, focus a beam of some state of matter that's probably very volatile 
and send it through something. And shields are able to be a kinetic barrier against forced intrusion of some foreign object. Mm -hmm. Those two things seem like they're very powerful. What do you think would happen if they were to meet? You you mentioned kinetic in your description of the shield. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said kinetic. Yeah, you're talking to a physicist. This is a problem. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did you hear how I got picked apart? Like, let's just... (laughs) I'm I'm assuming the idea is the interaction of the energy dispelled versus the energy used to deflect are such that they negate each other, something like that. Kind I, of. I, I it's know. worse though. Uh, would okay. you like the answer? Kind of. I would. I would absolutely love the answer. So the so the terminology they use in the book is it would cause an atomization. It basically is creating a what is an atomic weapon explosion when those two forces meet somewhere along the line of the laser gun and the, the shield potentially. So it's, it, it's okay. along any part of that line or the, the receiver. Right. So it's, it's basically, um, think about it this way in terms of personal combat, it's mutual assured destruction. If yeah. I have a shield and you have a laser gun and you shoot me with your laser gun, we might both, spontaneously combust both die unless you're far enough away and then one of us might survive (laughs) so why not put that shield on any sort of siegeable walls that's what they did they do that actually yeah okay remember remember how then i'm into things that one of the things that ua does is he shuts down the shields thus allowing the massive orbital bombardment and use of an orbital laser gun against the stronghold well Okay, no, but why would you need to shut down the shield for that? Because if you shoot the shield with the laser gun. Because if the shield interacting with a laser gun produces some sort of atomic explosion. You don't know what... So there's two two components here. One you might like, the other you're going to hate. The... Remember that it's along the beam of the laser gun, so you theoretically could cause the combustion of your frigate if you're directly targeting a shielded opponent. Okay. The second component is that... That doesn't make sense to me, but okay. The second component, which is the one that I thought you would hate, not the first one, (laughs) is that in order for the Emperor to maintain the trust of all of the houses like it's kind of an unspoken thing that everyone knows what's going to go down on arrakis but it has to be done clean imagine you wanted to fire crossland from the podcast in the way in which you did it wasn't and i do right and in the way you did it wasn't sending him a letter saying hey crossland you know as chair of the board i'm removing you from the podcast you instead just shot him in the fucking head. and the company right Okay. So like so, so the point being one is more there fun. Is effectively <laughs> there's effectively a Geneva Convention type of setup here where okay. where the uh Harkonnens are not allowed to do to use any atomics in their retaking of Arrakis. It's like only killing those that are necessary. Like they don't want to harm civilians, they only want to take out the family and like right. the warriors associated with the family. So, where a nuke in Arakeen would destroy everything. Right. Okay. So there you go. That's kind of the... Uh, honestly, that second the second description makes more sense. That's crazy because there's actually like a moderate physics explanation for the first one. Like there's a yeah. decent... There are a number of... There are a number of actual physical 
papers that have been written about the science of Dune, where it's like they were onto it, but they weren't quite right. So like there, there are reasonable assumptions that were made back in the sixties when he was writing this with a couple of people that like are reasonably correct given the science at the time. Okay. Which is why like, okay. And I'm also drunker than it's most not, scientists. It's not right were, now. So, yeah, and, right, I yeah. mean, yeah, may, maybe if I saw like an actual, maybe if I read the book, oh, I could, I could eh. make a make a call on it. I'm sure anyone could read the book and like be like it was unreasonable. But the reality is, at the time, we were only thirty years out from most of the atomic weapons and atomic science. Like, That's not fine. even right. at that point. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the uh, mutual ins- mutually assured destruction of laser guns really helped, especially as it was defined in the book, helped put to bed my, like, why are they sword fighting? Why wouldn't they just, like, boom, you're dead, you know? And conversely, in a, in a like, semi-less satisfactory way, Red Risings is instead, the reason that we don't shoot nukes at each other all the time is because... It is so economically prohibitive to build ships that it makes more sense for me to get your ship with people because people are cheap. Nukes are and ships are expensive. Nukes are cheap, too, but ships are expensive, which is also why Darrow ends up winning is because he doesn't give shit and he just nukes shit. Yeah. Kind of underhanded, but just in the comparison's sake. Cool. I have satisfied my weapons concerns for this podcast so we can move on to another topic. Definitely wanted to talk about that, though. I'm glad that we that we hit that point. I'm excited to dig in more because I'm not prepared clearly for this conversation. Um, and I'm excited to like truth. Truth be told, though, any other thoughts on the Baron and the Harkonnens in general? Oh, I've got one. Chernobyl was really rough on Boris Sherbina. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. OK. Yeah, I mean, fair. Really very rough. You're right. That's fucking hilarious y'all will hear about that in december so yeah yeah that was supposed to be this month but hey tim we're talking about chernobyl in december come on that show okay on speculative knowledge neat i cool. would appreciate Sweet. that yeah Isn't it on he's always on speculative knowledge. sorry it's on symposium yeah. i was wrong yeah 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 hey i'm just listening to this podcast on spotify where can i find out about this speculative knowledge or symposium thing you can find out about pj symposium and speculative knowledge by going to our patreon we post a monthly schedule that includes all of our live shows and any additional podcasts that may be published sometimes we throw in additional devil's cuts and sometimes we do a game night but most months we publish speculative knowledge and the symposium back to back and it's a great time that would be pj's symposium of media and whimsy in which you're right i host it instead of crossland so it's a superior show because it's me again this has become my catchphrase of the week but how dare you and i mean yeah it's it's a it's a fine time i basically get to ship host and pj hosts so that's it's a it's a good time um and then tim and i also have a show called speculative knowledge in which we talk about topics that we either find interesting or interested in or have some knowledge in so that's uh that's what we do speculative knowledge yeah cool you can find that on patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey it's one of the few things that is words and whiskey and not words whiskey which is terrible (laughs) but yep (laughs) <laughs> thank you fucking instagram and twitter for having character limits it's reasonable but i'm upset about it it's all right fine 
with that, we hit the end of the movie. The portrayal of the killing of the Freeman Jameis and Paul kind of choosing to take his first life and seemingly like his first real choice. Like he he hasn't had as a protagonist. His agency in the movie has been limited, but he still is. He still is a protagonist. He still makes like microcosm choices. But this is his first real progressive choice for his character that is taken here at the end. First, he chooses to yield his life, saying that he was going to kill him, but he should give up. He's then informed that this is a battle to the death and then subsequently takes his life. And it feels like his kind of first real choice walking that elusive path to become the Kuzachararash, um, the, the Kawasaki, Kawasaki, not Kawasaki motorcycle. Yep. <laughs> Isn't it uh, Kawasaki Ninja? Oh man, I'm so drunk. I thought in Kawit, my head I heard Kawitsach Hadarach. Kawitsach Hadarach. If I can see it, I can say it. Kwezacht Hadarach. Kwezacht Hadarach. That's how it's nope. pronounced there. <laughs> that's that's how you just said it. Kwezacht Hadarach. You also spelled that wrong. That's not how I it's think you're right. I think appendix. I think that it is. I think that the T is before that second I. Oh I am my the god, Dune Lord! All right, don't question me. I've been living on the Dune Wiki while I was going through the shit. Quee sats hatterach. Quee sats hatterach. Quee sats. Quee sats hatterach. Quee sats. On his elusive path to becoming the Quee sats hatterach. Here I am, king of editing, making it work. like Hatterach. Hatterach makes more sense. It's Quizot. It's it's Quizot Hatterach, not whatever you just wrote. I don't think in the movie it's pronounced Hatterach. Okay, that's why well, cool. like I'm, i read the book so right, it's whatever fine. i want it to be <laughs> that's also true <laughs> all right what was your question <laughs> so he's taking his first like active step in the story like in, in an active way in, in, that he's actually stepping into this role um and it, it i'm not saying that it's direct but it feels like an active choice to finally be choosing something and kind of taking this proactive step to say yes this is the this is the future that i'm going to become and especially when his mom when Jessica advocates to like take him off world and to like ship him somewhere else, like bring him back to the home planet, he goes no, and he's actively choosing that role as a potential messiah. The Maudib, 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 <laughs> fucking shit. Anyway, it's M A U D, no, M A U D D I B, Maudib, Maudib. Anyway, you can't the, cut this. That's too good. <laughs> the prophet of uh, of the Freeman Society. What do you think, Peach? What do you make? I don't know. I'm just laughing at your pronunciation. <laughs> Motherfucker. Not that I do any better. Uh, but I think it's funny. Son um, of a oh, bitch. you mean the Mahdi? Oh, the Muadib. 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 That's yeah, it. Yeah. You're right. So you're you're asking about Paul's decision to yes Paul's decision stay. to murder Jameis to like well, take a life murder. in a ritual combat take a life in a ritual combat he killed someone's death I mean I I, I mean he it, it's not even a decision though like he he gives him the opportunity to yield and is re- like rejected of that possibility he wins no wins. the other decision is to die to not take the life which would be an honorable thing to do pj would according it according to his own according to his own code 
like up until this point. So it's a choice. That what I'm saying is this is a choice to kind of break that preservation of life that he stood for. We talked about the palm tree scene for a long time pr- yeah. prior, but he has always been fixated on this idea of not becoming that thing that like he dreamed his in- he dreamed the vision of in the tent. There are a lot of components flying around in the air right now. Yeah, that's fair. This is his first like active step in the opposite direction. I would I would hesitate to call it an active step. Either way, I'd hesitate to call it active. I think it's a step, sure. It's a choice. I don't know if I'd even say that. Because if it's preservation of life, it is not preservation of everyone else's life over his own. It's preservation of life. And if it's a one-to-one, his choosing his own life over somebody else's doesn't conflict with that, technically. There's a very deep read here. That would say that if he was reading his visions and they were truly prophetic, maybe he should have let himself die here because he does also believe that he may lead a holy war. Yeah, there's there's that. That's true. Um, But also we know contextually that he's human and humans have self-preservation. Yeah, okay. That's the weakest fucking argument I've ever made. And I, I don't I said know. It because I've heard some bad argument. ones over the over the year, no, <laughs> but like yeah. well, I'll I'll take that one. I've <laughs> I don't know. They've all been <laughs> ironclad arguments up until this point. Ironclads <laughs> were terrible ships. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> very bad, very bad ships. Mm-hmm. I've played pretty a good lot StarCraft of player. Ironclad is a pretty great StarCraft player. Yeah, he was, he was a very that. good TB two member, TB three member. To that point, though, shout out to Brett. What do you think of the very end and the killing of Jameis and the step towards Madib, Mr. Olson? Oh, oh, sorry. I I was, I got conflicted because I forgot the, you know, I got to translate your stuff. I, when Paul becomes the Muad'Dib, when he starts that path. Yeah, that's, that's different. No, I, I think that again, what call back to like your first question you had casting in this movie is fucking insane i actually i'm not sure who the actor is that plays Jameis, but god damn it it's so good um his portrayal and his screams his shouts are in like bone oh fuck oh. so anyways getting to the point or like the more thematic context here i do think that like there's hints at right that he like duke leto have this like embrace of tradition and kind of know like their world and this adjustment to the world they're entrenched in. So it's interesting when he tries to let him yield, he has to kind of get the explainer from the, from, um, is it Stilgar? Yeah. Stilgar tells him Stilgar. like, yep. no, you, this is to the death here. Like, this is how this works. And so like, it's something he doesn't want to do. I wouldn't call him, um, a like conscientious objector or somebody who, you know, truly would never see himself killing somebody. He does have self-preservation, but in that moment, he kind of had to decide like, this is t- to the death and to fulfill the prophecy to join the Fremen. I have to do this. And given their culture, there's kind of like, it's like you said, murder right at the top of this question. It's really not that like, it's, it's kind of this like communal offering of like here what they leadership do with him and yeah right. there's yeah right. you're right Jamis is like in a way like sacrificing himself which is interesting 
Yeah, so I I thought it was really powerful. I thought they did a really good job explaining the whole, like, no, there's no yielding here. So, good stuff. All right. PJ, any uh, final objections? No. Um, The man who plays uh, Jameis, by the way, is named Babs Alu Somakun. Any other other notable... Names that we missed or notable roles? No, notable roles that he portrays number of video games he is in wrath of man he plays moggy a character there oh in but in a number wrath of, of man something that we covered on spec correct. on a pj symposium of media and whimsy <laughs> correct yes in, in wrath uh, of man of which we covered and what, watched like seven is, times recorded like five hours of audio for i don't yes. recognize him from that um moggy yeah, he played moggy oh he was the dude he was the dude who got tortured in the car he was the guy who was getting beaten up ah, a bunch you remember yes yeah, yeah. that's him okay yeah okay 100 immediately came around to it when i thought about him uh Great that movie. made sense if you watch that movie yeah. you could then listen to us talk about that movie sometime. our show it's a it's a solid it's solid this show. is this whole episode is just a plug for our patreon shows, huh? <laughs> just the very end of the episode the rest of the episode was not but all of a sudden the end of well, the episode let's is be transformed. Honest, if you made it this far you better like our plugs or you're like, you really like the, <laughs> you've liked what you haven't left yet. Right. So I would stick around. Like, we yeah. got a little bit more, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what, one of the other thoughts. So now that we've ended the movie interpretation, I want to bring in a couple of other questions and, and PJ will try to make sure that we involve you as much as possible. But I feel like we talked about a lot of the minor plot changes that happen here inside of the novel. Were there any other ones that stood out to you that feel necessary to bring up? I'm not sure what you're getting at, but once again, I'm going to bring up my favorite character, Kynes. When they are going on the Thropter out to the mining platform, you'll recall that Duke Leto kind of like points off and is like, hey, there's a, um, you know, a worm on the horizon. Um, Kynes calls it in, lets everyone know like, hey, you found the thing through their network system. They actually have like a or comms platform, really. They reward whoever found it with something. Like, they'll say, like, hey, um, you get water rations because you spotted something which is going to keep our spice production up. Good to go. In the book, when Kynes reveals this information to Duke Leto, Duke Leto is like, let those men know that, like, and these are the like the, the miners, right? That I give them yeah. my reward back to them. And it's at that moment that Kynes has this internal monologue where Kynes is like, I am here to kind of be like a vassal for the um, Harkonnens, but I do, like I'm conflicted. I don't really know what to do here. This seems like a just man I could follow. Um, that was cut. That's not the one you're talking about, but Kynes is my favorite character. So when that was mm-hmm. missing, I got a little upset. And then to close this thought, a high note. Kynes' character is really good, but didn't get the development I wanted. Again, I'm totally happy that it's gender-bent. I think um, the actress, Sharon Duncan Brewster, did a great job. Um, But it made her character almost feel somewhat villain-like, where my read of her, or him, is that it's like caught in the middle, right? Especially having the double Mm -hmm. identity of being light and also or Liet and also Kynes. So yeah. 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 Being, 
a Fremen and a part of the Empire itself. So right. that's that's a huge deal instead of that character. And I, I feel like that was hinted at, but like not, you know, yeah, again, not it feels like deep fan service, but not like a, yeah, mm-hmm. right. Still the best character. I don't know. I don't know if in in this individual portrayal, if it was the best character, I think I mostly agree with you from the story. For the most part, it's a very well fleshed out and analogous character. the The one that was missing for me, and this may be an impression that is missing for me in the story right now, is one of Fade. Fade, being, oh, of course. Yeah, Fade is the biggest part that is missing from this first part of the story. PJ, for your context, he is effectively the heir to Harkonnen. He is the heir to the Baron. He is the person who's going to step into the shoes of the Baron in in the moment, um, eventually to be wed royally, um, like the next up on the platter for the most part as far as a bachelor goes, potentially to unite houses, potentially to create other alliances. He is the second, maybe third biggest antagonist in, in the book. The Emperor being, you know, one or two and Baron being one or two and then him being like a distant third. His presence feels missing, but it also feels intentional. The Emperor, you can hint about, you can be really big about and like make it kind of this like big thing that we don't have to cast someone. And we can make it like a a looming in the background, draw a shark thing where it's like he'll eventually show up, but we're going to talk about him a bunch. But Fade's missing mention here, not being talked about at all, feels odd. Um, this was the only thing that really struck me as very dissonant and I understand why, because you want to introduce him when you have the money to again, cast another big actor and not just have it be a fucking cameo. Cause in this movie, it would basically be a glorified cameo, but it still hits me wrong. Yeah. It just a really quick thought. It was jarring enough to me that I literally thought the Harkonnen beast was fade. <laughs> right like i mentioned that the, at the beginning the, right? yeah, like I the thought, hand thing no 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 yeah. no uh dave batista's character oh uh, yeah, yeah 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 right batista's, yep right like I, yep glasso raban yeah. that's how that's that's how his presence affected me it literally made me switch the persona from a different character to be fade and i was like that's weird and it took me the whole movie until you told me that it wasn't fade so yeah and you know it wouldn't be unreasonable for Batista's character to potentially be an amalgamation of the two characters. However, I think you would have named him Fade and not Glassar Raban if that was the case. You wouldn't name him Raban as opposed to Fade. Like, yeah. unless you intended to introduce Fade. Um, because Raban is there and and a good character. And I think Batista does a great job introducing that kind of brutality and the way that he kind of chants through scenes and like beats that drum paints the Harkonnen picture very well, but it is not reminiscent of fades character, which is closer right. to a, a like Cassius type inside yeah. of the family. Almost like he's, he's like the regal guy instead of this very e- evil family. Like, Yeah. But he's like an evil, he's an evil regal guy. Like he's not, maybe more like Roke. I should do something like that, but more uppity. I don't know. You get what I'm saying. That was, that was my major sticking point um, in the whole thing. But again, that's not enough for me to like be very upset because I, I can imagine that the reason that they're doing this is to like immediately lead into a fade scene and use a cross time lapse. I shouldn't talk about this yet. We need to get into the spoiler part. Um, 
Yeah, because there's a bit of a time jump. There's a little bit. Like, it's not crazy, but there's there's some time that passes. Um, cool. Tim, any other questions that you had that you wanted to ask? Talk no, about? I sufficiently answered all the questions I put in the doc, and, you know, some we already talked about. A semi-brief spoiler conversation here for the rest of the Dune novel. So, I am um, actually not- going to take off my headphones, and you guys are going to spoil things, and you're going to text me when you're done with it. Okay. That's fair. Great. Yep. And that's reasonable. This is very, this is going to be quick. Obviously, we know that, like, again, PJ is outside of the scene. He doesn't understand that Paul becomes prescient, and that is also very well set up through the, throughout this movie. It's fantastically developed. Um, I was shocked by that, for sure. Yeah. It, it didn't seem like it was something that was going to pay out perfectly. I think a lot of the casting, like we said, is brilliant, especially the future casting. Um, curious as to how they potentially portray Aaliyah, which is always a problem of like a child that is cognizant, um, like a toddler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the stakes are going to get very interesting with Fade, right? Like I imagine the next movie opens up with that sort of is like a duel, right? Um something like yes. that right like doesn't harken and say like you're weak or something like that and he forces him to like fight somebody Ooh, i could be wrong on that i might be confusing the i might be confusing the duel that paul has where he like sheds the tears and they're like oh he's the, giving tears for clean yeah the calm or whatever yeah. it is um i feel like that's later but i don't fully remember they they create a rivalry via the calm after something there's an exchange between the two of them and i think it's that, me, are you saying isn't it that, I'm not trying yes, to be a, I, okay. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, again, like I sure. didn't listen. I I didn't. Li- I think you did the listen read thing at the same time. I read it, so I don't. Yeah, four people maybe wondering. I I both read, listened, and listen read this. It was basically one time permit. The um, end of the book I read. Um, to get into it, I had to listen to the first thirty pages or whatever, and then I was like, I'm not paying attention to this enough. And then I sat with the book, listened to the audiobook, read it as I was for the as for the PJ majority. does. Just just for clarification for oh, other yeah. people, in the same way that we've talked about, like PJ's read listen strategy some of the time. Um, same kind of idea. Anyway, yeah, so my pronunciations are probably off, as they have been the whole show, but versus the the audiobook. Um one of the biggest things, obviously, we talked about fade missing. Ali is a big deal. Uh, mm-hmm. Precognizance is going to be a huge thing in the next movie. I'm very interested in seeing how it's portrayed. Um, the frame in Holy War and then the preceding story of Dune Messiah. Um, which I Which we know. can talk about. Right. Yeah. Well, right. Yeah. And again, I don't want to... I'm not going to spoil that or anything. But I will be reading it, that. It leaves a lot of... Um, curiosities and i hope that denny gets to go into either dune messiah in the second movie which i could see they could fit in as a second part but at the same time um hope that he gets that third movie and i think he should especially for how grandiose this thing is any other spoilery thoughts in the second half i'm trying to think of things no it's it's pretty tricky for me i had a ton of cobwebs removed by the section rereads i did and watching the movie book three i owe a probably read this weekend when i'm um deer hunting yeah so Should fade good. fade is the one character that i really felt betrayed on because he is such a big yeah. deal and the princess print uh of the karina household um house karina 
start her name starts with an i i think it's i think it's house karina illumina or like illumina or Arumina, it's it's Irulan. something within a Irulan. Okay, yeah, I I could not remember. It's been it's been too long. Yeah, um, she is the other one that I would have liked to have seen, but also it's okay because she was mostly hinted at um, in the beginning of the story. So it right. wasn't uh, wasn't a crazy deal. But yeah, I'm also curious to see you know g- great ask on uh, PJ and the Bene Gesserit question and whatnot. So yeah, <laughs> right. So it's fun to kind of have him outside of the conversation for a second while he's staring at us uh, at his phone <laughs> and whatnot while we're just sitting here talking about him. No, bring, I'm, I'm good on or that. Or do we yeah. bring the fool back in? Cool. Bring him All back right. in. One other thing that I think is interesting is the uh, the comparison, um, the mind's eye versus the voice both kind of like semi-magical concepts i don't know Mm -hmm. i find that interesting pj i was just mentioning the mind's eye versus the voice um in their own ways uh sort of the the like semi-magical but not maybe fully the one primary difference from what we know about each of them the mind's eye is strictly interacting with the self as opposed to the voice influencing others great call that is actually a very good delineation between the two you can read other people but it's you reading someone not yeah with with the mind's eye right like it's lysander being able to tear someone down from the base and try to interpret where they came from what they are Mm -hmm. how they've been yeah that makes sense cool all right um oh there was one other question that was lingering in my head here just a final note to like pin the whole thing on to some degree is this, and you asked this question, Tim, actually, which is why I want to bring it up, is this science fiction or is it sci-fi fantasy? And I feel like that line is very interesting, especially inside of Dune. I would say, I asked this question, right, in the, or it's in the doc or whatnot. I definitely think this fits as fantasy, given the current year of 2021 i would say science fantasy so in the same league as something like star wars would be science fantasy something like star trek would be sci-fi given the connotations of the Bene Gesserit and you know everything we've talked about right that's too much disconnected from the scientific reality that i try to ground myself in when i read sci-fi that this crosses over into science fantasy for me. It still has cool things like laser guns. The shields are great, but I mean, we also have crappy lightsabers in that terrible star Wars series. So um, this is firmly planted to me as science fantasy. And since star Wars ripped off Dune um, and star Wars is science fantasy Dune is science fantasy. Star Wars sucks. (laughs) So I am in agreement with you with the one sort of contingent, if there is a way to tie in the hallucinogenic properties of spice with the Bene Gesserit and their powers, I can see it crossing into sci-fi. It would take a lot. It would take a lot of convincing and genetic mutation and, and, really kind of breaking it down that way and mapping out how that happened in order for that to happen. But um, short of that, I think science fantasy makes more sense. Mm -hmm. For the record, I don't hate Star Wars. If 
that isn't clear. <laughs> I'm just, just trying to, to add fun. more color to the uh, conversation, but it's bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As a, <laughs> <fuck you>. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, it's a great movie. How do we all? How would we all rank it? Let's let's end there, and then final thoughts. Mm. I really enjoyed it. I go, I go eight ish. Yeah, I don't really give number rankings. I usually do like or don't like, and it's a very strong like. I generally give rankings around the number seven. If it's above seven, I like it. If it's below seven, I don't. I I I may like it, but I might not recommend it to other people. And this is a strong recommended to other people. This mm-hmm. is a strong plus seven. And I think I'd agree, you know, like the A plus, but I, I love it. The sci-fi imagery is fantastic. There are a few depictions of sci-fi that do as well in this context, the grandiose context. Yeah, I need to see it in theaters one more time. At least. Yeah, don't disagree at all. I had a blast with it. I loved this movie. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I loved the uh, rather I loved the story. There are things that I question and have take take issue with. And I feel like we've done a good job of outlining all of those very small, weird points that don't really make any sort of difference to the story itself. So I I loved it. I would recommend it to anybody who wanted to see it tim thoughts yeah it's fantastic it's an incredibly true to life adaptation or true to source material i think it's incredible it's a great book i do have one question for pj will you be waiting till dune part two or are you going to read the book Mm. that that entirely depends on if I find myself with time to write, like I'm not going to avoid reading the book, but also I know I never find myself with time extra you have to other read book more books. commitments. I have other book commitments and those book commitments like require me to actively push things aside to find time to read those books. So if honestly, if I read it, it'll be audiobook form. And if anybody has suggestions, I don't know if there are multiple different like audiobook recordings of this. If there are, I would love a suggestion on who to listen to. But um, if there's an audiobook of it, I'll probably listen to that ahead of time. I don't know if I'll have a chance to sit down and actually read it. Fair. We can talk afterwards, but the main one on Audible is fine. Crossland, final thoughts. Dude, I loved it. Like, Denis Villeneuve at this point can do no wrong. I've not watched a Villeneuve movie that I didn't like. I'd say the only thing that we didn't talk about is the fact that the creature, the the six-handed creature is actually not in the book um, in any capacity. And this is not a spoiler at all. This is a totally invented creature and reminds me of the fucking thing at the in enemy in the other Villeneuve movie and it feels like an indirect crossover or maybe it's a baby heptapod we don't know could be an arrival crossover too who knows there's something there and no one really knows what's going on with that weird fucking spider thing that's commanded by the voice with hands for feet that is that is the one lurking thing in this entire movie that you know I've thought about a lot but Mm. yep that's it so with that next week we are going to be reading pj wow we're reading what what the fuck is this um we're going to be reading 
barely, we're going to be flipping through the pages of the Sons of Ares volume one of the graphic novel. So the entire first sec, that first book will be doing uh, it's it's self-titled Sons of Ares. The second one is titled Wrath. We're doing Sons of Ares volume one. So we will be talking through that. I'm going to also be listening to the graphic audio. PJ, are you going to listen to the graphic audio? Probably if I have access to it. Okay. It should be on your audio book choice source. Yeah. Sounds good then. Cool. So we will be doing that and discussing those and it's going to be a great time. We're in, we're going to talk about fucking Fitchner. It's going to be fun. Fucking he's been gone for so long. He has been. He's been gone for a while. Uh, Tim, anything to plug here at the end of the episode that you're excited about? Anything? Uh, nope. Anything to plug um, in general? If nope. you want to read a development blog that I haven't posted to in like six months, you can go to Tolson.io. But no, that's it. Otherwise, you can find Tim in our Discord through our Patreon. If you go to Patreon.com forward slash Words and Whiskey. What's Patreon? We'll tell you in but a second. So that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Andrew, and this lovely man right here, Tim Olson, for keeping our show's lights on. Uh, You can check out the links to our... Check out all of our links in our show notes, including our schedule, our Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts all in one very convenient location yeah it's very convenient tim has done a great job uh building out our website making sure that all those links function and have has built us so many functions that many other sites offer at a premium and one of them publishes our patreon content called Acast, and they've done a particularly Fuck you know that bad job over the course of the last week of publishing the shit that i pushed out to them so there are three episodes sitting in the hopper that they need to do uh so per tim's point better uptime than a cast no doubt have so, we had any downtime with we've, tim no with tim no i don't think we've we had have. user error i've done things wrong we've had crossland error you don't have to spec like you don't have to like uh, I said user error, obs- and then I said obs- I done things wrong. It, so it's user. Yeah. It is Crossland error. You've had one outage. <laughs> it was seven minutes at two in the morning on like a <laughs> fucking Wednesday night. Um, I got a page. <laughs> I got woken up. You guys don't even know this. The database backups weren't working, so I pulled a like week old backup and then went to YouTube and then took the fucking content from there and put it back in. So, but the backups, Whoa. the backups are working now, so it's good. This is the kind of service you pay for when you uh, when you join our Patreon. I don't. Yeah, this, wake this up is exactly what you pay for. <laughs> but you woke up for our page in two in the morning, and we we appreciate that. Tim Tim is a very diligent worker; does a ton of work. Again, check out our Patreon words and or patreon.com forward slash words and whiskey. We have three different tiers. One is our Discord tier. The second one is our bonus show tier, which we've already talked about tonight: speculative knowledge, occasional devil's cuts, and PJ Symposium of Media and Whimsy on a regular basis. And then we've also got. Our live tier mixologist in which you can get involved with us monthly 
talking about i don't know why i got like sultry there when i said get involved with that got weird anyway we'll get weird so we've been going at this for a while yeah we're a live show four hours in and which 15 minutes and this is recording right now the <laughs> longest we've ever recorded <laughs> <laughs> so tim olsen set a fucking record <laughs> So, needless to say, you can join our Patreon at any of those tiers. Check out the Mixologist tier for any of our live shows that we do as well. Beyond that, leave us and any podcast that you listen to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow, subscribe, click on that fucking bell, not only on YouTube, but also on Spotify because it is secretly very important in both of those now. That is a relatively new function of Spotify to have you notified. But if you want to be notified of our new episodes, check that out. It's important. Cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah, it's new. Thanks for having me. All right.